Welcome to Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw. I would be Bradshaw, that would be Mr. Briscoe, wherever he would be. And one of the hottest angles in the history of this business was this man. So a tin hunt, you maggots. That's your maggots. Best baby faces of all time, one of the best bad guys of all time, one of the best guys of all time, Sergeant Slaughter. Sergeant, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Sarge, always a pleasure to see you. You and I go way back to our first trip to Japan, so it's always a pleasure to see you back when you you had a full head of hair, and I had some hair. Yeah. Yeah, I had some hair also, and we were we were rookies on that Japan tour, got tortured, tried to get tortured every night, but I think we scared all those Japanese people off because they didn't oh, try did. too many times. We did. Yeah, back then I had uh, waving hair. It was waving goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> and John, just so you'll know, uh, Sarge is one of the best damn road partners in the world. I won't say much about his driving because they, that leaves a little bit to be desired. But this yeah. man knows every song Hank Williams ever wrote, man, plus every song that David Alico, Willie Nelson. Oh, man. He could sing, he could sing along with me. He, he, he knows the lyrics and he can't, he's like me. He can't carry a tune unless he sang real loud, you know. That's, that's right. Then we, we both we, sound good. We did a lot of laughing and crying down the, the highway with Vern Joslin. Uh, I remember a song we always used to listen to. It was called Chiseled in Stone. And it was about a, a, a man who lost his wife and went to a bar to have a drink. And the guy next to him had had started telling him a story that his wife died, but, you know, she was uh, buried in the uh, cemetery, and all he talked about was, you don't go lonely till you see it chiseled in stone. <laughs> <laughs> that is lonely. That's lonely, brother. Sarge, where, do, where were you guys riding partners at? What territory? Mostly uh, everywhere in the, in the WWE. Uh, actually, we started traveling when it was a WWWF, if we're allowed to say that anymore. I hope I don't get fined. But, uh, <laughs> You're allowed to say it on here. You may still be commissioner. We're not sure. Have you, have yeah. you had commissioner license revoked? You may still be the WWE commissioner. That's right. That's right. I, I, I just uh, gave it up for uh, Shawn Michaels so he could come back. <laughs> so I might still be uh, officially the, uh, the commissioner there. Uh, Sarge, you've had so many roles with the WWE, but I, you know, I'd like to start, you know, in your earlier days. I mean, who was the nut that had come up with beautiful Bob Remus? Well, that was me. That was that me. Was, I, oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> my my uh, one of my favorite wrestlers was the Crusher Lazowski from Milwaukee, the wrestler that made Milwaukee famous, and at the same time. Uh, I thought that was uh, Budweiser. Yeah, superstar Billy Graham was in the in the territory also. And uh, when I started doing my training, I started using the uh, the superstar Billy Graham look, where I had the long blonde hair and the and the muscles and the tie dyed shirts, and and I used uh, the Crusher's voice. Uh, he talked out the side of his mouth, kind of like that, you know. And uh, so uh, I, I combined the two, and I got to thinking, well, maybe I should be beautiful Bobby. And uh, that's how beautiful Bobby got started. I, my first territory was up in uh, uh, Vancouver, Canada, and I worked for Gene Kaniski. 
and Sander Kovar. And uh, I wrestled there for about two weeks. Uh, my first night in, uh, I got there, you know, you know how the uh, the ribs are in this business. They, they tell me to come a week early, so I do, and they put me in this hotel in the middle of uh, Vancouver, and uh, nothing really to do. I go down and have a, a few drinks at the bar. There's a cute little redhead that was a bartender, and, and every day I try to look at the paper to see if my name was in the uh, advertisement for the wrestling matches, which is on a Monday. I got there on a Tuesday and the following Monday was the, was the matches. So I started going through the newspaper and finally one Friday I came down, she said, Hey, I just saw the wrestling ad, the newspaper. So I said, where is it? So I started looking at it and I went down and I saw all these, uh, uh, famous wrestlers on the card, and then at the end it said plus one other match. <laughs> <laughs> that that was me plus one other match. So I that was beautiful, after, Bobby. Huh? Yeah, I didn't even get advertised. I was just plus one other match. So I cut the uh, ad out, sent it to my dad. I said, "Dad, I'm famous. I made it. I'm plus one other match." And so well, you were all over the country. That plus amount of match was everywhere on the billboards on every damn uh, a card in the country. So you were everywhere, Sarge. But fortunately, yeah. that moniker, beautiful Bobby, didn't last too long. But uh, take no. us back. You you got a unique, very unique story, John. I don't even know if you've heard this, but his training days with Billy Robinson and and the Iron Sheik and that crew that went through the the Minnesota uh, mill up there and uh, Vern, Vern barn up there. But uh, there was there's a couple of very interesting shoot stories that I, I like to yeah. like to tell that. Sorry. Tell us a little bit yeah. about, uh, you know, who was in that group that you're breaking in with and, and they tell us, you know, we, we know your dad was a roofer, I believe, and you worked yeah. in a roofing and you knew there had to be a better way uh, of yeah. making a living. And so, uh, yeah. And so, well, uh, you, you started out. Out. So lead us through that time there, Bobby. Okay. Uh, a friend of mine uh, was a sports writer, and he got an assignment to do a story on a pro wrestling training camp. So he asked me if I wanted to go along and, and watch it because we were both big wrestling fans. We'd always go down to Minneapolis Auditorium and watch the And, and I'm going to jump in there. The reason I that you were your privilege is you were a high school football star and wrestling star. So you were a great uh, known athlete in, 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 in uh, that area. So you were friends right. with a sports reporter, right? Yeah. Yeah. So so I, uh, I'm, I'm figuring we're going to go to some, you know, uh, beautiful gymnasium like uh, the WWE has done in Florida there, the uh, the big, you know, type of uh, atmosphere. And we ended up going out to this old barn. So a bunch of cars were, you know, parked outside the barn. So I walk in, I, I got a uh, almost a three-piece suit on. I asked my dad, okay, to take the afternoon off from the roofing. Yeah, go ahead. So, uh, I walk in and I wasn't expecting to, you know, to be where I was. And I walked in and there's a, a couple of cows and some chickens and ducks and bales of hay. And in the corner was a wrestling ring with a little light bulb hanging down from the ceiling. And all these guys were working out. Uh, Rick Flair, who was Rick Flair, of course. Uh, Bob uh, Bruggers, who was one of the greatest athletes in high school history of Minneapolis, Minnesota. 
Jim Brazel, great guy. Iron Sheik uh, as Cosmo Masari, Cam Patera, and uh, of course, Billy Robinson and, and Vern were training them. And they're going through all these calisthenics and running each other across the ring into the turnbuckles and crisscrossing to the ropes and all the, that goes with the training. So they stopped. And when the film crew got started and they did a little story, Bird says, do we have a volunteer that could come in the ring so we can show that this is all legitimate? Of course, I looked around and I'm the only one there <laughs> without a camera or a notebook. So I, I guess that was me. So I get into the ring and, and so Vern starts narrating and puts me in a front face lock, trips me, lays up on top of me on my on top of my back of my neck, trying to choke me out, was choking me out. So I'm tapping as hard as I can. And uh finally lets me go. All right, kid, get on up. There's another move on me. I'm tapping out. Blood started to come out of my ears, and and uh, I said, you know what? I think I'm going to get the hell out of here. Huh. So I go to slide out, and he uh, he goes, what? Where are you going? I said, well, I don't see any reason staying here. He said, why not? Too tough for you? I said, no. He said, oh, it's not? I said, no. I'm just letting you put these holes on me. You're taking advantage of me. He goes, oh, is that right? We're taking advantage of you. Oh, well, why don't you uh, step on in here? And uh, see what you can do. Get down on all fours in the wrestling position. We'll see what you got. So, you know, I was already kind of blown up anyway. So when uh, when I heard him yell out the name Rick, I, I knew there was a God. Because I used to wrestle Rick Fleer all the time in high school. I beat him like nothing. <laughs> and, and so when he said, Rick, you get on him. Rick goes, I got a bad shoulder, coach. And he said, don't give me that shit. Get in there. Get on him. So Rick gets down, whispers in my ear as he gets down into the position, take it easy on me, Bob. Take it easy on me. And I'm like, screw you, man. So he said, wrestle. And, of course, I pinned Rick. Then that was a little of an embarrassment to uh, Vern. And uh, so he said, well, get down again. So I get down again. He says, Ken. Ken Patera, you get on him. So Ken's a you know pretty strong guy just out of the Olympics. So he says, wrestle, and I escape from, from Ken. We're, we're looking at each other face to face. So I didn't know if I should, you know, light dive him or pop him on or what to do. I was just kind of trying to survive. So he he gets in between us, Vern gets in between us, and he looks over at uh, Billy Robinson. You know, Billy had one eye and he's pure black hair. And he's sitting on top of the turbuckle. And uh, Billy was one of the hey, trainers, Billy. right? What's that? Billy was one of the trainers then, right? Yeah, he was what? One of the trainers, the British Empire heavyweight champion. And, and uh, so he said, Hey, Billy, what do you think about this guy? So Billy jumps down, walks around me a couple times, looks me up and down. He said, well, I think it's a C, you know, and I don't want to say that word on here, but he <laughs> said, I think he's just a C and he's, he's nothing but a C. You're a C, aren't you? And I said, no, sir, I'm not. 
He said, yeah, you are. You're a C. Now get down on all fours. Let me see what you can do against me. So I get down on all fours. And yeah, <laughs> I'm more than blown up now. So I get down on all fours. And before he goes to get down in the position, he drops his uh, shin against the back of my ankle, tries to break my leg or my foot or whatever he was trying to break. So I came up, man. I First thing I thought about my my Dad's going to be roofing tomorrow without me. I'm going to have a cast. I'm going to be in the hospital. So I went kind of berserk. And we <laughs> we we went at it. And we went head, head pretty heavy. Not the mud, blood, and the beer type of story. And uh, I was bleeding from the mouth. He was bleeding from his ear. I was trying to pull out his good eye. And, uh, <laughs> and, and we were just going at it pretty hot and heavy and finally Vern jumped in there. So, okay, guys, help, help. Let's break him apart, break him apart. So uh, I had, I was on top of Billy when they broke us apart. That's why Vern said what he said, get him, get him out, get him out of, get him out of. So I go outside the barn and here comes Vern. Hey kid, uh, what's your name? I said, my name, my name's Bob. Oh, okay. Well, you're a pretty good fighter there. Where'd you learn how to fight? And I said, well, uh, high school, wrestling, football, you know, whatever I had to do, survive. He just thought, well, uh, what's your last name? Where do you go to school? I said, Eden Prairie. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, what, what's your uh, last name? I said, Remus. He goes, Remus, is your dad Rudy Remus? I said, yeah. He said, Hell, he put the roof on my house. I said, not only did he put the roof on your house, I put the roof on your house. And he said, well, I'll be damned. Well, give your dad a hello and a hug. I love him. And uh, if you want to be a wrestler someday, you should uh, think about coming next year when we have the camp. I can't put you in this one. Even though you did pretty well, uh, we're, we're 10 weeks into the training camp, and I don't want to you know, back off. So. If you're interested, keep in touch with me. I said, okay. So I, I went around and went back in, into the barn. And he runs after me. He says, where are you going? Where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to finish with that song. Mitch tried, tried to start. He tried to break my leg. And he said, no, no. You'll have plenty of him if you if you want to uh, come back into the uh, the wrestling business. You'll have plenty of, of, of that guy, Billy Robinson. I said, okay. Well, I just want to finish what he started. And uh, so anyway, off I went, told my dad about it. He said, oh, you got to do that. I don't want you to be a roof for the rest of your life. So after I get through all the, the training, we had about 60 guys going through training camp. Three of us made it. Chris Taylor from the Olympics and Paul Pershman, who was Buddy Rose. The three of us made it to the camp. So that's when I headed out to Vancouver as beautiful Bobby. And uh, so I'm in the, the middle of the ring about, well, let me let me back up a little bit. My first night, I, I get to uh, the Coliseum about three hours early. <laughs> they didn't want to be late. In my first match, professional wrestling match, and I walk in, and there's a stud sitting on the damn bench smoking a cigarette, read the book. And I recognized him. I put my bag down. I went up to go introduce myself. I said, my name is Bob Reed. And before I could get my last name out, he said, my name's Jack Briscoe. 
<laughs> I'm the uh, NWA World Heavyweight Champion. I said, I know, I know who you are. He said, well, I know who you are, too. I said, you know who I am? He said, anybody beat up Billy Robinson, I got to know who they are. <laughs> so I had this reputation as a shooter. I didn't even know what a shooter was. <laughs> and, and so it, it followed me you know, most of my life in the, in the wrestling business. But so Jack says, uh, you getting, uh, you, you here for a while. I said, this is my first night. He said, Oh, you got a car. I said, well, I got a pickup truck. He says, that's even better. You got a radio on that uh, pickup truck of yours. I said, yeah. He said, can you get some country music on that truck of yours? I said, Oh yes, sir. Uh He said, do you mind if I ride with you? I'm here for a week. I said, It'd be an honor. So I spent my first week in the professional wrestling business uh, driving the uh, the uh, world heavyweight champion, Jack Briscoe, around. And he educated me real, real good. And uh, it's uh, something I'll never forget. And uh, I wouldn't be talking to you right now if that moment hadn't happened uh, because of what happened in that uh, little mess with Billy Robinson. So lo and behold, about two weeks after Jack leaves on on his way to some other territory, I'm in the ring and Vern always taught us to stand in the corner with our back to our opponent. And when your name gets announced, you turn around, especially a baby face, you turn around and you give them a high five and get that applause. So I'm waiting. I'm up signing some autographs back then. People would come up to the ringside and get your autograph. So I'm beautiful Bobby, the long blonde hair and, and all the crazy outfits. And I hear, hear people, the fans are laughing, and I can't figure out what they're laughing about. So I look over the back of my shoulder, and I'm brushing a guy by the name of Buck Rampstead, who was from Minnesota. And he's standing in the middle of the ring blowing me kisses. <laughs> and I went, oh, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not the character. That's not what beautiful Bobby's about. You know, I was more of the, you know, uh, superstar Billy Graham. That's what I wanted to be. So uh, I annihilated poor Bob uh, that <laughs> night. When I got home. My wife said, what's wrong with you? I said, I told her what happened. She goes, Oh, no, you don't want that reputation. I said, no, I don't. She said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm, I'll, I'll take care of it. So next morning, I get up, go down to the, uh, in Blaine, Washington. We were living in Blaine, Washington. I find a barber shop. Cut this hair off. You sure? Yeah, cut it off. So I got it down to uh, the normal length I always wore. It, and then I went next door to the beauty shop and got it back to my normal color. And the next time I wrestled in Vancouver, Canada, or in that territory, I was Bruiser Bob. <laughs> <laughs> no more beautiful Bobby. <laughs> so, well, yeah, so yeah, I, that's great. I never heard that switch. That's funny. And then I got, uh, awesome. got invited down to uh, Portland, Oregon by Don Owens because he loved he loved my character. He just loved the way I, I wrestled. And, of course, when I get in there, he says, uh, "Bye, uh, are you available after you leave Vancouver, Canada?" There, I said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, a friend of yours, Jack Briscoe, told me I should bring you in." 
I said, he did? He goes, yeah, he said, you're a damn good hand. And you know, they always, his brother Owen always wanted to do these little shoot matches before we do our regular matches. And you'd be in the, in the middle of the ring and all of a sudden Elton would get on the microphone and say, $500, anybody can beat the, the Bob Remus here, Bruiser Bob, if you can beat him in five minutes, you'll get $500. <laughs> Bobby, was you ever part of was, was you ever part of any of those workshops? I heard that eventually turn into the work where the guy yeah, spent yeah, we the money and that. everything. So were you ever part of that scheme to screw yeah. Elton Dollars out of his fifty dollars? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we would uh, we would uh, split it. We would uh, whenever they they would uh, he started quitting. Uh, he stopped. Uh, announcing it to the fans, he just made it between the wrestlers. He'd come up to to us and go. Hey, I want you guys to do a five-minute shoot for the for the uh, match. Okay, so we would uh, work it, and we'd all <laughs> do a, a deal, and we would do, we would split up the money at the end. <laughs> so when you first There's, got down there, Sars, did you have to take on the fans? Were you the one that got put out there in the in the in the very beginning? Yeah, yeah. One time we're in this. Uh, I don't know where it was. I think it was Eugene. And it was like a lumberjack place. And this big man came up and he got up on the side of that ring. And I went, oh, my God, he's a, he's a monster. He was a looked like Kane, you know, about that size. And so I went up to him. I said, I got to either talk him out of it or fight for my life. So I went up and I started berating him and, and doing all kinds of different things. And he finally backed off. He says, I, I don't want nothing of you. I don't want any of you. <laughs> so luckily, he stepped down and didn't embarrass me. <laughs> how long were you in Portland? And how long first were you in Vancouver? Then you went to – how long were you in Portland then? Uh, I was in Vancouver for about six months. And then I went down uh, – they used to do like Tuesday night. Every month they do a Tuesday night special in Portland. And then I started going down there. Uh, pretty steady and that's when i flew over and met uh gerald over in uh, japan when i was in, in there and uh, i think that was like 1975 or or so wasn't it gerald 74 75 somewhere in yeah. that area yeah 74 75 so uh right before i went in there i went to japan first then i came back and uh moved down to portland oregon I actually lived in vancouver uh uh uh, Oregon, uh, Washington, Vancouver, Washington, and uh, just loved it there. I always thought that I would, you know, someday retire. My wife and I just loved it there. It rained a lot, but it was never a hard rain. It was always beautiful. And all the trips we take in Vancouver, Canada, or the to trip, the, the trip. The trips, Bobby, were fantastic. I heard they were like max 125 miles. Oh, so yeah. it was like a beautiful trip, beautiful, it, beautiful yeah. drive, and easy, easy yeah. trip home every night. Yeah, Sundays off. It was just great. Saturday night was only like 60 miles away. And uh so it was it was a great, great territory. And of course, uh, later on uh, after I left. Just before I was going to leave, I gave my notice and, and I was going to go back to uh, Minnesota, then down to Louisiana. And Don Owens came and said, uh, hey, uh, Bob, would you be able to stay an extra week or so? I've got this young kid from Minnesota coming in and he can't talk a lick, but he's a 
terror. He's a, he's unbelievable in the ring. I said, sure, I'll, I'll stay. So first night we, we take, uh, team us up and we get in and we have our match and, uh, we get up into the uh, gorilla position or it wasn't, it was called the, the crow crow's nest. That's what it was called. The crow's nest. And this kid was horrible in the ring. I mean, he didn't know a hammer lock from a headlock. And, and so we get up to the, uh, we win a match. We go up to do this promo. I said, Hey kid, let me take it. I'll give it to you. If you get lost, just give it back to me. Okay. So we start doing the promo. I give it to him. He blew the he blew the doors off the arena, and then he gives it back to me. I I didn't know what to do with it. I just he he did everything for me. So I get back. We get done. I go in the locker room and I said, Don, you don't need me to to talk for this guy. He's a master on. He he could talk the the chrome uh, off a bumper. You know who that guy was? Jesse Van Torp. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Jesse Ventura. <laughs> Jesse wow. is one of the best talkers I've ever seen. I've seen him in so many different situations from wrestling to politics to business. I mean, Jesse had a banter about him that was just unbelievable how good he was. Yeah. Yeah. He just, he, he studied it. I mean, you could see his, his wheels were always in motion and, we used to golf together in Minneapolis and, and uh, when we worked in Minnesota territory. And uh, he and uh, Adrian Adonis teamed up and they were they were really good together because, you know, Adrian did all the work and Jesse just did the posing and did the talking. And uh, together they were a great, great tag team and, and fun to work with. But they, uh, you know, what, what we went out to uh, San Francisco uh, one time for a three or four day uh, tour from Minneapolis and we go to have the matches and there's no Jesse doesn't show up for the whole tour never showed up we get back uh, to Minneapolis and I think it was a Wednesday we're going to do some more promos and here comes Jesse walking in looked like he hadn't slept for about a week and he came up and he smelled like garbage. I mean, it it was horrible stench. And so he, he, uh, Vern is hot, you know, because he didn't show up and missed all his show, his, uh, his matches. And and so he's not talking to him. So I said, Jesse, what what the hell happened to you? He said, come here, Sarge. I got tight. He said, I got out to San Francisco. I got off the damn plane and a bunch of my, uh, Navy SEAL buddies, we're waiting for me, and we went out and partied. And he said, "I woke up in a damn dumpster. <laughs> I woke up in a dumpster <laughs> two days ago, and here I am." <laughs> he says, "I don't know what happened." <laughs> That's great. Uh, he was, he was if, have you been in a dumpster recently? What's that? I was asking Jerry Briscoe if, he, if he's been in a dumpster recently. Oh, oh yeah. Matter, matter yeah. of fact, I can, I can tell you the last time I was in a dumpster. <laughs> Wasn't long ago. <laughs> last time I was in a dumpster, I was in the dumpster with Vince McMahon waiting for Terry Falk and uh, Mick Foley to push us off the stage on some pay-per-view. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Down. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. But uh, – you know, then I just kind of wandered around 
and uh, left Portland, Oregon, and got to uh, back to Minneapolis. Uh, went down to uh, Louisiana and teamed up with a fellow by the name of Pat Song, and uh, didn't speak much English, but uh, we were a, a, a good big tag Korean team. guy. Had a hat on him a foot long. Oh yeah. And, uh, what a what a what a heat seeker he was down here in Florida, Bobby. Oh yeah, yeah. But he he uh, he and I were uh, teamed up and, and uh, we wrestled a lot with uh, Tony Atlas and uh, Tommy Wildfire Rich. And man, could they get the uh, the people going? And we just uh, enjoyed working with them. Uh, not much communication with. Uh, with Pat Song, but uh, he he just followed us. He just he knew exactly what to do. And then I got a call that my mother was uh, sick, so I had to uh, go back home. I I left the uh, titles in the trunk of my car at the airport. I flew back home, and she ended up getting uh, cancer. So I had to call uh, Bill Watts, tell him I had to uh, stop, uh, uh, not be. At, in his uh, territory because uh, my mother uh, was sick and my dad wanted me to, he took it pretty hard, wanted me to run the roofing business again. So uh, I said, not a problem. So I quit, quit the wrestling business and uh, uh, went back to the roofing business for about two years. And that's uh, kind of when I stepped back into, uh, into wrestling it was about two years later. I came home from, uh, from a job, a roofing job, and it was pouring rain. So as they say, when the rains come, the roofers went home. So I, I walk into the damn uh, uh, house, I uh, soak it wet. I said, well, I'll see what's on the tube. So I turn on this black and white TV we had. And uh, as soon as I turn it, turn it on, I hear the rain car in. Da, 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 da. And I stopped and I looked and I started watching it and it was called the DI and it starred Jack Webb. And that son of a gun was the meanest little SOB. <laughs> and, and I started watching it and watching it. And I said, my God, he's, he's doing all of this and not saying one profanity, you know, and in the military, especially boot camp, every other word's the F word or the C word, or, you know, but he's saying all these things and, and getting, the, you know, these guys hating him. And I said, would that be a great character for a wrestler, you know, a, a good villain? So I, I couldn't wait for my wife to get home. I got a Polaroid camera, got a campaign cover, some sunglasses and a whistle and cigar riding crop and a swagger stick. And I had her take pictures so the next day it's raining again so i run down to uh, minneapolis uh wrestling office to show virginia my new idea so he goes uh well, he wasn't in so i i walk in and wally carble was there i don't know if any of you know who wally carble was but he was like burns right hand man so i walk in he said hey bob how's your mom doing I said, good yeah well can you get back to wrestling pretty soon i said i don't know i'll have to wait and see he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I got this idea for a new character, and I wanted to run it by Byrne. Is he going to be back? Well, he's probably out for the day, but uh, what's the what's your idea? So I started telling him about it. And he goes, well, you know, kid, uh, 
I don't think I'd uh, go much further than than that because they, you know they've had GI Joe, or they've had this guy and that guy, and, and the military, and you know, and it just never really worked too well. I said, oh, okay, well, it was worth a try. So I go to leave, and I jump, go to the elevator, and the elevator opens up, and there's Vergan. He said, hey, Bob, how's it going? How's your mom? Oh, everything? Yeah, okay. What are you doing here? So I had this idea for a, a, a villain, and I write it by you, but Wally didn't think it was a good idea. Well, don't always leave a Wally says, come on in and show it to me. So I go in, and he's answering calls, and Finally, about an hour, I, I'm sitting there, and he goes, okay, tell me your idea of this, this villain. So I started going through the Sergeant Slaughter, you know, uh, character, and I even had my name picked out, Sergeant Slaughter. So I, I start doing this promo to him, and he jumps up behind his desk, and he starts doing the promo for me. Huh. And, and he, he starts yelling at me like I'm a private, you know, <laughs> in boot camp. And he finally gets done. He goes, that's the greatest idea I've heard in a long time. He said, I hated my drill instructor. What a great idea. What? Can you start? I mean, he said, I, I, I don't want you to start here, but can you go somewhere and do it? I said, well, I really don't know what I can do. So, well, let me know. So I, I go home. I tell my dad about it. He said, well, yeah, mom's doing okay. Just Give Vern a call, see what he's what he's got in mind. So Vern says, I talked to Bob Geigel and Harley Race. Harley just lost the title, and he's working full-time now in Kansas City, and they're looking for some villains. Can you go down there? I said, Yeah, I'll go down. So I, I head down to Kansas City and you know, we're there for three hours of taping of, of the wrestling show. And pretty soon uh Bob Geigel and Pat O'Connor come up to me and they said, can you do a promo for us? We're, the show's over. We're just going to tape it and, and look at it later. I said, sure, I'll do it. So I start doing the promo. I get done and here comes Harley Race walking over to me. And Harley, you know, being in the military, always smoked his cigarettes with his hand covering the cigarette. And it burnt the inside of his hand. That's how tough he was. He had a big callus inside of his hand where his cigarette would burn his hand. And he said, kid, that's pretty damn good. <laughs> he said, when can you start? I said, uh, well, I get it. I just came down here to do a promo. I don't know when I can get down. He said, well, make sure it's soon. He said, just uh he looks over at Guy going, O'Connor goes, Hey, I want to be married to that guy. And you know what that that means in our business, being married to somebody means you're working every night with them. So I finally work it out where I go down to Kansas City and I start that's where I started Sergeant Slaughter in 1976. Wow. And uh every night I worked with Harley Race or Bob Brown. Wow. And Bob Bob Brown, I know a lot of people know Bob Brown, but what a talent he was. I mean, just a bump taker on all went all over the place. And people loved him because he had a little short uh, crew cut and little chubby little guy, but people just loved him. And so I I 
worked between uh, him and, and uh, Harley. Then pretty soon Harley got out of the out of the uh, program he was in, but I think it was DBIC or, or someone. And he said, Jit, you ready? <laughs> I said, ready for what? He says, ready to make some money. I said, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. So we started out one hour to a draw in St. Joe, Missouri. And we went every night, one hour draw. Go back to St. Joe, 90 minutes. <laughs> 90 minute draw. Go around the territory, 90 minutes every night. Next night, two hours. Two oh, hour wow. draw. I mean, talk about getting in shape in a hurry <laughs> and learning from, from the greatest general that I think ever set foot in a squared circle was Harley Race, and I'm hearing this every night. I mean, he's telling me. Then finally it got to the point where no time limit, but, you know, Harley would go like 40, 45 minutes, and that, that would be the end of the match. But he would then from that point on, whenever we would uh, get into a, a match, he'd go, you called it, kid. Wow, I got to call the match for Harley Race? Oh, my God. Talk about learning your stuff in a hurry and learning it from the, the best that ever lived. Uh, I would, you know, again, another thing that Jack Briscoe saved my, my, my pretty much my career by giving me the best advice of not giving up. Just, you know, you'll find your character. He didn't, he wasn't too wild about beautiful Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> so he was very nicely telling me, <laughs> you, you'll get it. You'll find it. But don't give up on it. And now I got Harley Race telling me, you know, uh, call the match, kid. You call the match for one hour. I mean, holy cow. Where do you get that? I mean, Sorry. unbelievable what I what I was, you know, put, put into and how I survived through it and how I gained so much of that, you know, Sorry, uh, did you in the ring. That? Did you realize at that time you're working with a former NWA champion, one of the greatest of all time, and he was recognized at that time as one of the greatest of all time, and you're going an hour with him. Did you realize then that I'm going to make it in the business? Yeah, yeah, I do it. I do it. I actually knew it pretty much in Portland, Oregon, because I was in cage matches. I went over to Japan, and I was in cage matches and all kinds of matches that we had over there. And, and I survived it, and I enjoyed it. I, I loved it, and I studied it, and I wanted to make it better every every night. You know, in Japan, when you do something really good and crazy, they want you to do it every night. So you you would you do it. You have to do it. They want you to do it. So, but the the language barrier just to like pack song. You know, I couldn't understand the Japanese. They could pretty much understand me, but. You know, you just went with the flow of what was natural, what was good, what was bad. It was a, lot, a, lot, a lot of people don't understand the effort of going into those hour matches, those 90-minute matches. And you're a big guy, and then Harley's a big guy, and there's a lot of weight out there. I know you were you were you you were always in condition. What what was your cardio uh, routine? But but you wasn't you wasn't one of those gym rats where you go in and look like a Jesse the Body or Superstar Billy Graham. You were more of a 
a big, tough, burly guy that had the endurance of a, of a, of a metal weight. So uh, what yeah. did you do a lot of cardio back then or what? Yeah, I did a lot of running. <laughs> I, I ran a lot. I, I didn't hardly ever work out with weights. I was big enough. Yeah, you're um, big. <laughs> yeah, I did. You know, I, when I, when I first heard about steroids, I didn't know what the hell they were, what they were. I didn't know how they took them. I thought it was in a pill. Uh, I didn't realize you put it in your arm with a knee light. I mean, God knows I'm not going to do something crazy like that. And, and uh, so I always just, when I was a young boy, I lived on a golf course. Uh, we, we woke up one morning and these bulldozers were tearing down the woods next to us and they made this golf course. So, I would get up in the morning and barefooted and I would just run. It was such a beautiful run because there was beauty, flowers, green, and the trees. And, the, and it was just fun to run. And I just got into the habit of running. And I never went to the gym much. You know, I, I did the uh, push-up blocks. And uh, basically, it's all I did for, for working out to me. I, I just didn't have the time. I don't. I have to take my hat off to the, the talent that look like they do because they go to the gym. That's a big effort. That's a lot of, a lot of time and dedication to, you know, your diet and, and all those things. I mean, the warrior, the ultimate puke and, <laughs> and uh, Hogan and, and all those guys that had those beautiful bodies that, that didn't come easy. I mean, it, and that to, you know, travel and do all the things that we did and their diet, you know, how they could, I mean, I, I really give them a salute to how hard they work to look like that. But I just had a, I was naturally big. I didn't, I, my, my regiment was Wheaties. I ate a bowl of Wheaties every night from when I was a, just a baby in a, in a crib. My mother, I went to a, a, family reunion one time I was 15 years old and I towered above everybody and I we got home and I said mom can I ask you a question yeah how come I'm so much bigger than everybody else grandpa and uncles and my cousins and she said well I'll tell you why you're so much bigger when you were a little baby out of the farm you would make a fuss and I would get up and put you in the high chair I put a bowl of Cheerios and some Wheaties and some fruits and stuff, and, and you just kind of pushed everything away. But one night, you grabbed that bowl of Wheaties and you pushed it back to you, and you took a bite of it, and you ate the whole damn bowl. And she said, you slept till 10 o'clock the next morning. She said, so I got smart. She said, I, you like the mushy Wheaties. You didn't like crispy Wheaties. You wanted the mushy ones. So she said, I would put a bowl of Wheaties in the refrigerator with some milk on it, a little sugar. And as soon as you make a fuss, I put you in the... She said, then I even got smarter. I gave it to you before I put you to bed. <laughs> so she said, that's why you're so much bigger than everybody else, because you ate Wheaties. And uh, Gerald and, and JBL, I still eat them today. <laughs> that is the breakfast not, not of champions, you know. Breakfast yeah. of champions. Yeah. Not every night that I that I uh, do. Well, Sarge, you got a commercial right there and don't even know it, man. Yeah. Well, we tried. We tried right. that. When I to move farther ahead, when I was a GI Joe, my cousin was kind of like my agent. So 
we're talking about how, you know, I even got him on Wheaties when he was a young boy, come over to my house out to the farm. And we'd always have Wheaties before we go to bed. So we started talking about it. I said, wouldn't it be cool if we went to General Mills and offered them a commercial idea where you got this huge high chair and you start to film out on a pair of combat boots and you work up to the fatigues, the camouflage fatigues, and pretty soon you're up, and there I am with a big spoon in my hand with a big bowl, and I have eaten Wheaties, and I go, Wheaties, breakfast of champions. And <laughs> so we, we laughed about it, make a joke out of it. So, you know, General Mills is, is in Minnesota. So two weeks down the road, he calls me up. Guess what, Bobby? I talked to General Mills. What do you mean you talked to General? I told them your idea. And they, they would love to do it, but they only do amateurs. They only do amateurs. I said, oh, well, thanks for trying. So, okay. About two weeks later, he calls me back. Guess what? They decided they had a big meeting. You're going to be the first professional athlete to be on a Wheaties box. I said, I am? He goes, yeah. Oh, let me call Hasbro. Hey, guess what, Hasbro? I'm going to be in the first box of Wheaties for, for athletes. I mean, for professional athletes. And he said, oh, that's great, Sarge, but we can't let you do it. Why not? Well, we're, we're coming out with our own cereal called Ralston's G.I. Joe Stars, and you're going to be the third one. First, we're going to have General Hawk, then Duke, and then you. So, sorry. <laughs> so, we had to call uh, General Mills. I never did get on the, the first uh, G.I. Joe Stars did sell. Because they they, did, uh, they put the wrong guy on first. Well, Sarge, so I, was Harley I never got to do it? Was Harley right? Was that was the first time you made big money in Kansas City? Did the money go? Uh, yeah, yeah. Was I, it Harley? I made pretty good money, you know, as, as far as the territories like Portland. Uh, it all depends on who who paid you, you know. Like Don Owens was a good payoff guy, and he 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 always uh, paid you for what he. You know, thought you were worth, and and not just what they what they did that night, and uh, you know, the Minneapolis territory again was just was like uh, Portland. You're home. You know, you only worked in in the winter time about maybe sixteen, seventeen times a month, and in the summer you worked maybe ten times a month. But you got paid well, and you're always home every night just about every night. So, so you know, that, that was uh, a part of the, uh, you know, education of, of learning how to take the money that you earned and put it in the bank and not spend it, you know, going out partying. And, you know, it was tough. It was tough. And I, we all like to go out and have a, a good time. But it was, you know, an education on how to, because uh, Harley and, Jack, of course, uh, Briscoe, always put it in my ear. It's not what you make, it's what you save. And I said, oh, thank you. I never, I never quite understood that until I got deeper into the, the business. Not, you know, how much you make, it's how much you save. And uh, so they, they were key, key to my success and my, you know, where I'm at today. Where, 
at that point, did you go back to Minnesota before you went to work for Vince Senior? That was that. That was the progression. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, actually uh, my mother got sick again, and uh, this time she was uh, on her death death uh, bed. So I I quit the business again, and uh, what took care of the the roofing uh, business. And so uh, one day, Bird uh, Gagne calls me and says, hey, I got an opportunity to send you to Hawaii for uh, Ed Francis. Can you go? It's a six-week tour. He said, I really think you would do well over there. They need a mask man. And I said, geez, I never wrestled under a mask. He says, well, it, it's pretty much the same. So I said, well, let me talk to my dad. So my, my mother says, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. Go, go to Hawaii. So I tell Vern, yeah, I'm going to go. So I I head over, I'm the executioner in Hawaii. And every night, I mean, it was a blessing. Rick Martell was my opponent. <laughs> I mean, how much better could you have? But, but Rick Martell is your opponent every night. And so for six weeks, I wrestled under this mass as the executioner. So I come back from Minnesota and I get a call, Virginia. Hey, what's this I uh, hear? You're the greatest mass wrestler of all time. I said, well, I don't know about that. He said, well, that's what Ed Francis told me. And he's seen a lot of them. He said, I got a guy here by the name of Don Jardine. And I don't like him. He don't like me. He's a super destroyer. I said, I know who you are. Who you're talking about. He said, he's a stud. And he said, well, he's a stud, but he won't do business. He won't do good business. So I want to get rid of him. I was wondering if you would take his place. Take his place. What do you mean? Well, I want to fire him and I want you to be super destroyed. I said, geez, I don't know. Let me talk to my dad. So everything was always going through my dad and my mother because of her health. So, yeah. Yeah. What, what the hell? When are you going to be on the road? So I called her. Uh, I, I maybe I can do it. He said, "Well, I've got an eight passenger plane. If I can get your home every night, can you do it?" Let me talk to him. <laughs> so, yeah, he said he can get me home every. If he can get you home every night, you can go. So I would get up early, go four hundred, go to the roofing job, get the crew started. You know, we did a lot of hot asphalt roofing at that time, and about. Two or three o'clock, we'd head out to the uh, Flying Cloud Airport there in Eaton Prairie, beat the, the guys, and we would fly to the towns. And we would come back that same night. And I, you know, it wasn't every night, so it wasn't real, real bad, but it was, it was tiring, you know. So here I, I my first uh, night, uh, I'm uh, going to replace Don Jardine, is in uh, Winnipeg, Canada. And uh, Nick Bockwinkle and myself and Angelo Mosca are a six-man team against Bergania, Billy Robinson, and uh, I think it was Mad Dog Vashon or something like that. So I get into uh, the locker room, and Vern takes me over, introduces me to everybody. Hey, this is uh, Bob Remus. He's going to be Super Destroyer. And uh, Alfred Hayes was Don Jardine's manager, the Super Destroyer's manager. And uh, this was this 
didn't go over too well when Bird fired uh, Don because Don was like uh, kind of like the Steve Austin, <laughs> you know, he didn't take shit from nobody, and he don't, you don't tell him what to do, especially if you're the, you know, the, the uh, promoter and, and this and that. But in real life, I mean, he was he didn't if he didn't want to take that mask off, he wasn't taking it off. So a very so, unique character. <laughs> yeah. And he was the toughest nails kind of guy. Yeah, and yeah. the guys respected him. And so here I come waltzing in to Winnipeg, Canada. The place is sold out. I mean, I didn't do enough, had nothing to do with it. So I get this funny looking mask, and, and uh they burn says, Well, we can't just call him the super destroyer because he, you know, they'll know it's not the same guy. Well, what what should we call? And Lord Alfred Hayes looks at me and goes, hmm. Why don't we call him the Super Destroyer Mark II? And he was making a joke of it because he loved Don Jardine. They were they were roommates. They shared an apartment together, and so he wasn't real happy with with me being there. So I had I you know I didn't realize the politics back then. I was just there to to make a living and do what Vern wanted me to do. So. Finally, they said, well, where is he going to be from? Well, how about uh, Gibraltar? You know, there's no such, it's just a big rock out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so I'm from Gibraltar. I'm Super Destroyer Mark II. So, okay, let's go out and have the match. So, lo and behold, we, I mean, I don't know what happened that night, but we we blew the, the roof off the place. And we got back and all the guys were like, man, you, you're pretty good. You're pretty good, kid. You're pretty good. You're pretty good. Well, thank you. Thank you. You know, and I'm humbled, very humbled. I, you know, wasn't a big you know, rah, rah, rah. So after a couple of weeks and meeting, you know, Pat Patterson and uh, Ray Stevens and Nick Bockwinkle and, and Bobby Heenan, and, and, and we all became a family. It was and, you know, Louis Dendero, uh, Pat's uh, partner. And, and we all just, uh, Bob Wharton uh, Jr. And we were, we were just all, you know, a, a family. And we went golfing and we did all skiing and all kinds of stuff. And we just had a, a great, great time. So it was time for Pat to leave. Pat was going to New York. So as he's uh, getting ready to go to New York to uh, start doing some promos to, to uh, start his, his work there, I said to his partner, Louie, I said, do you think Pat will take these photos to Vince uh, McMahon Sr. for me to show him? And he goes, well, let me see him. And he said, who's this? Who's this, Matthew? I became Matthew because... Whenever I would check in at a hotel wearing the mask, it was very cafe. Vern Gagne was very cafe. You had to wear your mask everywhere, except for like in a, in a hotel uh, uh, at a restaurant like that. But everywhere else, I used to have masks made so I could eat if they would be wide open. Because I had to have it on 24-7. So we, uh, when I check into a hotel, I, I check in as Matt Burns. M-A-T-Burns, huh. B-U-R-N-S, as a, as a Brit, as a joke. Yeah. 
So, well, Lord Alfred Hayes, who speaks the perfect English, who I became godly, God rest his soul, he, he and I became just like that over uh, the time I was there. And he always used the perfect King Queen's English, and he'd say, Matthew. He'd never say Matt. He wouldn't call, call you a Jerry. He'd say Gerald. Uh, Pat was Patrick, and, you know, Lewis, you know, and uh, Raymond was, you know, it was always the, the, the long name. So anyway, Matthew was, was my, my name. So, I, so Louis says, Matthew, who is this? It was pictures of Sergeant Slaughter, you know. And he said, this is you? I said, yeah. He said, I've only known you as Super Destroyer Mark II. I said, well, this is a character I started in Kansas City in 1975, you know, 76. He says, oh, I'll give him to Pat. So Pat goes off, comes back. But a week later, I get a call. Uh, Robert Remus? Yes. Uh, is this Sergeant Slaughter? Yes. This is Vince McMahon Senior. Uh-huh. Yeah. Who is this? <laughs> Vince McMahon Senior, WWWF. I said, I received some photos of you as Sergeant Slaughter from Pat Patterson, and I'd like you to come in and do a trial, a, a promo. And I said, well, yeah, I could do that. He said, when can you come? I said, when you need me. So Allentown, Pennsylvania, I go in, and uh, I'm there, you know, as the usual, three tapings, and uh, they'd seen everything. So finally, it's time for, for me to to go out and do my thing. So he says, uh, okay, uh, he used to call me Sergeant. Sergeant, it's time for you to go out. I want you to go do a promo with my son. And I said, well, which one is he? Huh. <laughs> and, and he goes, he's the, the one with the, the manicured hair. You know, he pays $300 for a damn haircut. Can you believe that? The little Richard hairstyle he had back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he had this big, you know, do and, he said, that's him there. He's the taller guy with the, the big, pretty hair. I said, oh, okay, yeah, I'll go out there. So he says, yeah, and Vince Sr. always had four quarters, you know, he's jiggling. You know, it was like a nervous thing for him. And he'd walk around. He always knew when he was around because he'd hear these quarters. So he says, is there anything I can do to help set up your promo with my son? And I said, yeah. So I reached down and I take a cassette tape out of my bag and I said, could, could you play this? And he said, well, what is it? I said, it's a Marine Corps hymn. He goes, well, what do you want me to do with it? I said, can you, is there any way to play it in the arena when I go out? He goes, music? You want me to play music when you go out? I said, yeah, it's a Marine Corps hymn. He said, I'll be right back. So he goes, into the uh, production truck, and uh, Kevin Dunn's father was was the head production guy there then. And here comes Vince back. He goes, and he's got his chest out like he discovered something. And he goes, yeah, they're going to play it. They're going to play the Marine Corps hit for you. I said, oh, okay, great. So he says, are you ready? I said, yeah. So I get my top. I'm, I'm already got mad boots on, fatigues, got the whistle, the riding crop, the swagger stick. I've got my campaign cover on, the sunglasses, and I grab my cigar. So he says, okay, whenever they're ready, 
when the when the music hits, you go. I said, okay. So all of a sudden it's da 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 and the people are dead silent. And I, I said, well, that went over real well. <laughs> so so as I go to walk out, he puts his hand, his arm across my path, and he puts his hand up, stop. And then he starts jiggling those cords again and he's listening. He's trying to hear the reaction of the of the crowd. But finally they start murmuring. Well, they're getting louder and louder. So finally he shows me out the huh. curtain. <laughs> he goes, go get him, kid. So I walk out just like uh, uh, Jack Webb in, in the DI. I blow that damn whistle and I call people maggots and scums and slimes and pukes and stand up and salute the sergeant. By the time I get halfway to Vince, they're coming over the barriers that want to kill me. They don't even know who I am. And, and so they're like, Who's he talking to? Who's he calling a maggot? You know, so finally I get up to Vince, and Vince is like standing there all proud, flexed up. And, and so he goes, Well, what do we have? And I went right into his face. I said, Shut your whole puke. Who gave you permission to speak? And the saliva is flying, flying out of my mouth all over. You know, how he is with, with germs. <laughs> he got that like. And so he, he, I, I finally move around him, and I start telling him all kinds of names. And finally, I get my swagger stick, and I, and I take my whistle, and I blow it right in his ear. And he's like, "Son of a bitch!" <laughs> and and he, he's not saying that. Every time he tried to say something, I said, "Shut your whole puke!" I'll tell you when it's time to speak. And so I just berated and berated him. So finally, I take my swagger stick, and I start ruffling up his hair above his ear and he his shoulder starts going up like cut that out stop that you know and so I get right into his ear I said who cut your hair Ray Charles <laughs> and, and he he just kind of like looked at me like who the hell are you talking to you know so finally we we do the promo we get all done and I go I dismiss him I go to walk away, and he's saying something on the microphone about me. Yeah, let's start this long. I, I said, well, what the hell? I'll put a little icing on the cake. I take a big drag out of my cigar. I turn around, and he's not looking. I go right in front of him, and I go <laughs> right in his face. <laughs> and he turns purple and green and red, and he's like shaking. He's quivering. I didn't realize he doesn't like smoke, you know. I, I didn't nobody told me anything. I didn't know anything about it. So he's like so I I make my way back and I'm fighting people off. I you know so I am they're they're fighting me. So I get back in and all the guys that are still at the uh in the locker room, they're kind of like <laughs> that poor guy, he got fired before he gets started. Uh-huh. And, and so I'm sitting there taking off one of my combat boots. And I'm going to take the next one off, and I hear the quarters clink, clink, clink. And I'm, I'm looking down at my boot, and I see Vince's uh, loafers, you know, high-dollar loafers walking around my chair three, four times. Finally, they stop in front of me. So I look up, and I'm looking at him. He's, like, shaking his head. <laughs> Not a very nice look on his face, shaking his head. And he goes, 
and points for me to follow him. So I, he strolls and goes over to this back closet somewhere and turns on the light and he right quarters are going again, walks around me two or three more times, stops right in front of me, goes, that's the greatest character I've ever seen in my life. That's the greatest villain I've ever seen in my life. Even my son hates you. <laughs> when can you start? I said, well, I'm still up in, I'm still up in Minneapolis as a super destroyer Mark II. He goes, well, don't worry about it. I'll, get, I'll have gags. He took, everybody called Virginia gags. I'll tell gags you got to be here. So that's basically how I got into to the New York uh, uh, territory in uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania, by doing a promo with, uh, with our boss of today, our, our God. <laughs> oh, thank you. But they'll put all fun aside. We wouldn't be doing this right now. We wouldn't be going out signing autographs if Vince hadn't taken the dive and, and make the business what it is today. I mean, he, he, he really is kind of the reason why we're going out doing autograph sessions and, and making extra money on the side. And, you know, he could really, he really could come down on us if he wanted to and stop us all and say, I own all this. You guys did pay me a little bit, you know, but he's, he's, he's a good guy. What is the difference, Sarge, between uh, you work for Vince Sr. a lot and you work for Vince Jr. probably a lot more? You work for both extensively. What was the difference between the two? Uh, well, I think one of them had a heart. <laughs> <laughs> we won't ask you which one. <laughs> Don't ask me which one. No, uh, they, were, they were both, uh, you know, cut a lot on the same cloth, you know, I traveled a lot with Vince Singer and we went out to dinner a lot with uh, Arnie Skolan and Andre and, and of course, uh, Vinny, oh, he called him Vinny all the time. And, uh, but I talked to, just like, uh, I'll go back to a Jack Briscoe and uh, Harley and Mr. McMahon Sr. and Pat Patterson, all, I absorbed all that. And I always listened to those those people. They were the professionals of, of my generation. And Vince Sr. was a very soft-spoken guy, and he knew what he wanted. And he would have Arnold Skoll in there to carry out his, his wishes, uh, tell the boys without having to tell them face-to-face. And, but he would tell me stories about it. He said, you know, when I had competition, he said, I would pay kids 10 cents to go out and bring me back as many posters on the telephone poles in the stores that they could carry. He said that I would have them bring me all those posters and things, you know. And he said that was a way of me, you know, fighting my competition because they didn't know they were in town. (laughs) He would send kids out to the next town that he was going to and and take all the posters out out of the town before. The, the two weeks before he came. So, but he was uh, just a real, real gentleman. He, he uh, always enjoyed having a good time, especially after, especially if it was successful. And, and uh, he, he knew who his cream of the crop were. And 
he came to me with his almost like his heart in his hand and he said sarge sergeant i'm gonna have to let uh, let you go and i said really did i do something wrong he said no no you've been here seven eight months and i don't want you to get over exposed this first run so i want you to go somewhere for another year or so so i said really and he says yeah that's the way i run the business i don't want he said in a in my my uh, area, my territory, I feed my baby face, my my Bob Backlund, my Bruno Sarmartinos. I feed them all the the villains, but I don't want to. I, I just want to feed you a little bit to them, but I don't want to, them to eat you alive. So I want you to go for a while. Okay, I'll go. So I go down to you know uh, Charlotte, and I. Uh, do some great business down there. I, I uh, run into a, a kid I ran, I ran into in Atlanta when I, before my mother got sick and I had to quit the business. And Don Colonel and, and uh, he's, Don was one of those guys that uh, first match, put on a hell of a show, kissed the babies, hugged the grandmas, shook hands with everybody around the ring. And I got to thinking, geez, you know, maybe if I, got a private I could get more heat on myself if I take somebody that they really love and make him into a monster you know and and uh they'll even hate me more you know so I uh, we're in Columbia uh South Carolina and I send word over to with the referee tell Don Trinado to come over uh after his match I like to talk to him so Don comes over one of the better performers not only professionally but he was he was a shooter too and an arm wrestler i mean whew, nobody could beat don so i gave this idea i want to take someone like you your character that's wholesome you know everybody loves you i want i want to make you my private i want you to be a villain and he goes oh geez i don't know <laughs> you, you you think it'll work i said what the hell Give it some thought. So he said, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm tired of being the first match. He said, I, 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 I don't want to be the first match all the time. I said, well, if you don't want to be the first match, jump on board. So we get together a couple of days later. I said, okay, Don, you got to go get your head, head shaved. But <laughs> my head shaved, he was real proper and proper by his hair. <laughs> I said, yeah, you got to. I got to tell you to go get a, a bus cut. You got to go do it. You're private. You know, I'm the day. I'm the DI. I'm the sergeant. Oh, okay. So he goes, gets his haircut, comes back. It's shorter, but not buzz. I said, Don, that's not but You got to have the bus cut. I'll go with you. Oh, well, you know. So anyway, he does it. So uh, I, I put him in the fatigues and, and he, and I got to think of why I got to have something else. So. I looked in the paper because uh, people are just, I was the United States heavyweight champion at that time. And people were hating me and they were destroying my cars. And so I said, I'm going to get, I got to get a different car. So I start looking in the, into the newspaper and I see the 73 Cadillac uh, Fleetwood limo. It's a limo. Hmm. So I call the guy. He said, yeah, it's still still available. I said, how much you want for it? He says, uh, 
well, I don't know. How about uh, two grand? I said, two grand? Don't sell that thing till I get there. So I, I drive out, and it's a, it's a funeral home. I get to this funeral home, and there's this beautiful Fleetwood 73 Cadillac. Not a, not a thing wrong with it. He had to replace it because it was getting old, and he didn't want it to break down in a funeral position. So he said, I got to upgrade it, so I'm going to sell this. I said, 2000 still the price. He said, well, how about 1000 <laughs> I said, I'll take it. Don't get them. So I take it, and I take it to a friend of mine who owns a body shop in Charlotte. I said, can you camouflage this? He goes, I can do anything. I can camouflage your, your forehead if you want me to. I said, well, camouflage this and, and let me know when it's done. So I I go, and I can't believe it when I pull up. It is immaculate. It's just, and it's done in the uh, lead paint that the military uses because he was in the military and he was at a, a base there. So I take it and I grab Cronodal and I said, let's go over to the uh, wrestling office. So we drive over to the wrestling office and uh, I go in and I said, Jimmy, Jimmy Crockett and Ole, Ole Anderson. Come here, I gotta show you something. I got another member of my family. And they're like, what, what? So we go out the back door and there's this camouflage level. And Jimmy Crockett's eyes get like saucers. He goes, what in the hell? And Ole Anderson says, what are you wasting your money on that for? Why did you do that? That's a perfectly good car. I said, Ole, this is going to make me more money than you can ever believe. I said, that's a character in itself. He goes, oh, geez. And he, he walks back in. Well, those people, they beat the hell out of that car, but I didn't care. You know, they, they, it became a graffiti board because it was lead paint. You know, you could just take your fingernail and write. So I finally had to get it taken to another guy and completely sand it down and an enamel. Uh, camouflage paint on there so up and down the highways we went and that I mean to draw some attention that's like putting the bullseye on the back of my, my uh, if you would have brought it to Briscoe Brothers the first time you wouldn't have had to go on for that damn second paint job <laughs> let it start worth the, the arm and a leg <laughs> it would have been worth the drive <laughs> Jerry what okay, was see, but that's how the camouflage limo came to be and so we ended up, uh, Jimmy said, uh, Jimmy Crockett said, Sarge, I want you and Trinodal to, to uh, team up and go against Steamboat and Youngblood. And I'm going to send you to Japan. You're going to come back with the World Tag Team Championships. I said, you are? He goes, yeah. So that's it. I know we're the World Heavyweight Champions and we're, in all these matches with Steamboat and Youngblood. I mean, how much better could I have had it? I mean, it was just crazy, crazy. And, you know, we worked with, with you and, and, and Jack, and, uh, and they worked with, uh, with, uh, with you guys. And, I mean, it was just a great territory. We had the Piper there, Valentine, Flair in and out, and, and Black Jack Mulligan, and Wahoo McDaniels, and 
Roddy Piper, Roddy Piper, Don Morocco, that territory was loaded then. Oh, man. The first matches, first match was uh, Pedro Morales. That's how much talent they had. Pedro Morales was was, uh, the, the opening match. But anyway, long story short, we did some phenomenal business. And we go to Greensboro Coliseum. I told Jimmy, I said, we didn't have pay-per-view back then. I said, Jimmy, you got to get a close circuit because we're going to sell this damn building out. We need to have an overflow. Oh, I don't know, sorry. The, the, uh, the advance isn't that good. I said, they don't have advances here, Jimmy. <laughs> we, we call them advances. They don't do advances. People don't spend their money till they get there. Well, I don't know. I don't know. So anyways, another long story short, they, they estimated that 17,000 cars, not people, 17,000 cars, the, high, the North Carolina State Patrol said that turned away. And they kept putting on the radio, if, you're, if you don't have tickets, don't go. And everything was like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I got about, it was about 8.30, and I'm still a mile away from the Coliseum. I can't get there. The, the traffic's so bad. So I finally pulled over to 7-Eleven at the bottom of the hill there at the Coliseum. And I said to the guy, can I leave my car here for a couple of minutes? I got to get to the matches. He says, yeah, go ahead. So I run up and I got a kid to go down and get my car. And we had five matches on that chart. Piper uh, worked with somebody and uh, and Flair and Valentine were, the, were supposedly the main event for the title. And Flair came to Jimmy Crockett and I and said, Jimmy, do you mind if I go on before the cage match? <laughs> he said, I- I'll never be able to follow that. And I went, you're Rick Flair. You're telling me you can't follow my match, our match? He said, Sarge, ain't no way I can follow that with Valentine. Not that. So we had this cage match, and, and uh, it was an incredible uh, sight to see. So now it's time to move on. So we go to Jimmy's office and Jimmy wants to make me the booker and John the booker because he let us run our own program. Uh, Dory Funk Jr. was the booker at that time. And Dory Funk came to me and goes, Sarge, whatever you guys want to do, you go ahead and do it. And to this day, when I see Dory, he goes, that was the easiest thing I ever had to do in my life. All I did was sit back and take all the glory. He said, you got to do all the work. So it was time for us to move on to another opponent. So we're, we're talking about being bookers. And then Jimmy Crockett in his office, Don and Chernobyl and I are they're sta- sitting there. And he goes, I, I got an idea. I'm going to put Jack and Jerry up against Steamboat and Youngblood because they're the new champions. And I said, oh, okay. And I'm going to put you against uh, Boogie Woogie Man, uh, Jimmy Valiant, and Bugsy McGraw. <laughs> and I didn't quite laugh in his face at that point, but I, uh-huh. I just kind of gave him a look. And I looked at Don, and Don looks at me, and, and Jimmy Crocker looks at us again. He goes, well, what do you think, Sarge? 
And I looked at Don and I said, I think it's time for me to go back to New York. <laughs> and Jimmy Crockett started getting like, like Vince was, turned colors. He said, what do you mean go back to New York? This is hot. You're hot. I said, I'm not working with Bugsy McGraw and Jimmy Boogie Woogie Man Valiant. They're no. great guys, but that's not my, my cup of tea. Uh, so I'm going to officially give you my notes. So I call up Vince Sr. He's still running the company. Can I come back? Yeah, come on back. Come on back. So the first night we go to Allentown. People hated me more than when I left. And we go off, have the dinner, some drinks at the bar. So he says, Sergeant, it is so good to have you back. It is so good to have you back. I'm so happy that you're back. You are the greatest villain of all time. Greatest villain of all time. And I said, well, Mr. Uh, McMahon, if you think I'm a great villain, you ought to see me as a hero. And he went, what? Sergeant Slaughter? A hero? What are you talking about? You could never be a hero. You're a drill instructor, Marine drill instructor. You could never be a hero. I said, well, here's my plan. Here's my thought. You got the Iron Sheik here. You got I had total committee. The hostage situation. You know, Black Hawk's down. You know, the murder of the Marines at the embassy. I went through the whole thing. And I said, you know what, Mr. McMahon, we never got to punch Ayatollah Khomeini right in the nose. He got away with all that. Why don't you let Sergeant Slaughter go after the Iron Sheik for America? And <laughs> I did give me goosebumps. And he's just like, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. You almost had me. Uh, no, Sergeant, you can never be a, 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 a hero. You can never. And I look over his shoulder. You know, Vince is our boss today. He's getting ready to take over the company. And he's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Vince Sr. turns around, Vinny, don't you turn the Sergeant into a hero. Don't you do it. He's the best villain you ever will have. Don't you do it. Okay, Pops, uh, it's time for us to go. You know, so two weeks later, we're doing Allentown again, or three weeks later. Um, we go through the first hour. I wrestle. People hate me. Boo, boo, boo. The Iron Sheik goes out and does a promo with a Ayatollah blasting. Next hour, I'm not even supposed to be on the show. So I'm getting my taking my stuff off. So here comes uh, Vince. He said, Sarge, are you ready? I said, ready? What do you mean? Ready for what? To do what you talked about last two weeks ago, three weeks ago. It's a bar to be a hero. I said, now? Said, right now. Right now. He said, I'm not going to tell the Iron Sheik. I'm not going to tell Blasty. I'm not telling my dad. I'm not telling anybody. The only people who are going to know about it is the director and me and you. That we're the only three that are going to know. Kind of sounds familiar, right? Montreal, good job. But anyway, uh, so I said, are you, you're serious? He goes, yeah, I got to go back. We got to do this. He said, I'm going to have the sheet go out and have a match with uh, Eddie Gilbert. And I'm going to have him destroy it. And when they're getting them on the gurney and stuff, I'm going to have them push it off above them. And here you come. But let the, let the sheep start doing the same first. Let them start spieling the old USA 
spit and all that. I said, okay, whatever. And as he turns to go away, he turns back he, and he chugged right into my face. And he goes, and give me your best General Patton promo. <laughs> and I went, in five minutes, you want me to do all this? What are you doing? Yeah. So he said, and he turned back, he said, element of surprise, element of surprise. And I said, element of surprise. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's going to be a surprise. <laughs> so our chief goes out, beats up poor Eddie Gilbert, tips him over on that damn journey, gets that microphone, on the USA Cup. And all of a sudden, the Marine Corps him hits. And I'm like, Where's, I don't even have my campaign cover. It's gone. I, they had brought it back, but I don't know where they put it. So I grab a camouflage cap, baseball cap, and I head out the damn curtain. And the people... Before I go on, I look at the monitor and I see Blassie and uh, Iron Sheik kind of like, and I could read Fred Blassie's lips. He goes, wrong music, wrong music, wrong music. (laughs) They're playing the Marine Corps hymn for the Iron Sheik, he thought. So all of a sudden, here I come. And I got the whistle and and my riding crop and the swagger stick. and, And people were like, they went silent, and all of a sudden they started building it up. It was just like louder, louder, louder. And I come out, and Blassie, being a smart pro, you know, veteran that he was, he knew something was up. So he gets in between us and doesn't let us really do any confrontation. But we kind of, you know, mouth off at each other. And finally, I get in the ring, see how Eddie's doing, and the sheets leaves. And with the Blassie. So I finally I see that Eddie's okay. They get him out of there and I grabbed that microphone and I did my general patent, you know, promo. Iron Sheik, you want to spit on the ground my mother's buried in? You no good. You maggot. No, all these kinds of words. And finally, I said, I declare war on you, Iron Sheik. I declare war on Iran. The United States, we declare war on you, you know. And those people started rumbling. I mean, they were just, whoa. I thought, well, here I go. This is all I live, you know. So I put my hand on my heart. I said, there's one thing I've done since I was a young boy in school, the Cub Scouts, and then the uh, Boy Scouts, and then the Marine Corps, and, and wherever I could do it. I put my hand on my heart and I started doing the Pledge of Allegiance. Well, I'm telling you, yeah, I don't know if you've you ever seen it, but those people jumped up on their chairs. They got their lighters in their hands and they're doing the Pledge of Allegiance with me. And it was the most incredible thing that ever, that I have ever been involved in to change from a villain to a hero in just a matter of uh, maybe two minutes. And I couldn't get out of the tent. I couldn't get back to the dressing room. People were carrying me. It was just the, the most incredible thing. And I get back into the dressing room finally, and here comes Vince. Grabs me around the waist, lifted me up and down. He said, that was incredible. I can't believe what you just did. And that speech, oh, my God, you know. I said, well, I'll tell you what, Vince. You show us your side of the business. And I'll show you our side business. 
and we're going to make a whole lot of money. And if I'm not mistaken, you'll be farting through silk before too long. And he started to laugh. And he said, okay, I'll be farting through silk. So that was the beginning of the hero of, of Sergeant Slaughter yeah, against the Iron Sheik. That was like 1984, end of 83, 84. And, uh, Sarge, that, that's where the, the hero began with the, with the Sarge. Sarge, not to just skip over some of it, the, the one big match, the two big matches, the two of the greatest in Madison Square Garden history, obviously you with the Sheik and you with Pat Patterson. So oh. the Pat Patterson one came before you went down to the Carolinas, right? Right. The Holly fight. Just to right. touch on it for a second, because that's such a seminal moment uh, in wrestling history, the first really hardcore match. When you were first pitched that match, did you realize how big it could possibly be? No, no. No idea. Uh, Vince McMahon uh, Sr. Uh, came to, uh, to Pat and I and said, I want to have a blowout with you guys at the end. But he says, I don't know what it's going to be yet, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be thinking about it. So finally he came and he said, I want to have a, a match called the alley fight. So I said, the alley fight? Well, what's an alley fight? He said, it's a, I thought he thought about doing outside the Madison Square Garden in, in an alley somewhere, you know, in a parking lot. And he said, I want you to have a match where there's no rules, no, uh, because when we were doing our program, to you know, continue on, the referee would get knocked down, or uh, we get disqualified, and blah blah. And to continue it on, Vince Senior didn't want just a cage match; he wanted something different, crazy. So he said, "We have this thing called the alley fight, where you wear whatever you want to wear. There's no rules. Went through the whole thing, and he said, no referee. And I did." You know, I said, no referee. Okay. And I didn't give it much thought until we started thinking about it. Go out and have a match without a referee. You know, that's that's not always the easiest thing to do, you know, because that, that's your third third party in there. That's who you try to work your heat with and, and sympathy with. And so we worked up to that alley fight in Madison Square Garden, and I knew it was something special when we sold out the garden and the felt form that that wasn't done very often Bruno did it a few times but we actually sold out the form which is next next like uh, what I was trying to do with uh with Crockett the closed circuit the runoff so we were like the the maybe the fifth or sixth match and people were just like yeah this isn't much you know and they were wanting that match, that alley fight, because they knew that was that was gonna be something. There was gonna be a winner and a or a loser. Wasn't any be a disqualification, wasn't gonna be anything. So we went out and of course Pat went out there first. And just before Pat goes out, I said to uh, Ernie Roth, my general, uh, I called him the general and, and I said, Ernie, I want to ask you something. He goes, what, sir? How does this match end? I said, there's no referee. Who, who stops the match? He goes, that's a good question. And he runs off. And I guess he ran off to talk to Vince Sr. 
So Pat heads out. Pat heads out and got his New York, I love New York t-shirt on and some blue jeans and some combat, uh, cowboy boots and a New York cap and just playing with the crowd, you know, New York, New York, New York. And so time for me to go out. And just as I'm going out, here comes uh, the general. Don't worry about it. The old man's got it all taken care of. It's all taken. Just, just go tell him till he gets there. Tell he gets there. So Pat and I go out there. We, we're just so as soon as I get on the apron, there's no rules. There's no referees. Here comes Pat. Wham! Starts. I'm not even in the ring yet, and the match has already started. So we. If anybody's ever seen the match, it was it wasn't a long match, maybe about 20 minutes or so. But it was so much fun to tell that story because there was no referees. We had to work in slow motion, basically. Because everything had to mean something because there was nobody there to ask you if you're gonna quit, are you gonna give up? No one, two, three. There was no one, two, three. There was no no reason to put anybody in a cobra clutch because nobody's gonna. You know, once he passed out, that's the only way that would have worked. So we just got to the point where it, I, I, I said to Pat, give me a catapult. And Pat said, a catapult? I said, yeah, into the corner. And I catapulted up into that corner, and I hit that damn post, and a burn of my head, and my, uh, I mean, it was just, instant blood. I mean, it was just like a faucet. And uh, the first thing I thought of was my wife. My wife was on her way to New York City <laughs> to bring me my birth certificate because Vince McMahon Sr. wanted me to go to Japan and I didn't have a passport. So there I, there I am, you know. And that's all I was thinking about. I see the blood all over everything and I continue to, to work the match but I'm thinking about how is she going to find me what hospital I don't even know where I'm at how is she going to find me at some hospital and I'll bleed to death <laughs> so we, we just kept going and going and going and going and finally got me outside the ring and I'm coming back in and I'm not giving up and, and people were actually starting to cheer for me because I was you know a bloody mess and not wanting to stop and the next thing I know, I see this damn towel come hit the, the uh, rope where I'm uh, standing. And I went, what the hell? And then it, it, it leaves. I said, oh, good. That was just somebody's shirt. And then here, now it goes into the ring. And the bell starts ringing. And I look back, and, and uh, Ernie Roth had thrown the towel in to stop the match. And Pat slides off and, and continues to, to sell what he was doing. And I look around and just through the entrance, I see Vince McMahon Sr. And he gave me a thumbs up like that. And he, I guess he, I don't know if he was going to do that to begin with or if that was what he decided to do before we went in there, or if it just got to be where it was too bloody that he had to do something. But I don't know how the match was supposed to end. So the towel went in there. But that—that that is, like you said, 
hardcore before before hardcore and uh talent uh nick foley said he was at in the third row of ringside that night and he said he just couldn't get over that match uh, that pro propelled him into getting into the business and uh it was just a, a phenomenal one of a one of a kind match and it just so happened i guess the stars were lined correctly but he had two ring generals pat patterson and sergeant slaughter in in a match where we we never said a word to each other it, we just did what came natural and when it was time for him to take his belt off and start whipping me that was fine when it was time for me to get the brass knuckles out and, and i you know put on the, the whole the uh entourage fall out too weak and you know it was just everything just clicked that night and of course luckily i i could butterfly my uh head uh, from having to go to the hospital and my poor wife when she saw me she said oh, what happened i said i just got a little you know gash there so all of my passport pictures for you know for uh, five six years or what no matter how long you have your passport has me with a big gouge band-aid on my head <laughs> every time i think about that match and Sarge, course, how yeah. was, uh, Sarge, how was Ernie Roth, uh, the Grand Wizard? You know, lots been made about Bobby Heenan for a very good reason, and uh, the, Mr. Fuji, Lord Alfred Hayes, a lot of managers who came after him, but not a lot, not a lot is said about the Grand Wizard. And, and also, Arnie was a manager during kind of that time of the seventies, early eighties. How was the Grand Wizard to work with? Uh, phenomenal, phenomenal. He wouldn't do anything to to bother you. He was there to do his job. He do, did the promos. If you could do, a, you know, back then they assigned four or five managers to to talk for the guys because some guys couldn't talk. You know, a, a funny story with uh, uh, the animal, uh, George Steele. George was a high school teacher, a history teacher, and a football coach. But when the red light came on, he... he, he uh, uh, he stuttered and so that was one of the reasons they gave him a, him a manager and that's how it started because he couldn't talk so somebody would talk for him and finally the old man oh sorry disrespect when Vincent Matt Sr. Uh, said you just do what you do that's fine don't emphasize it even more so that's how that that character got created was how much simpler could it have got that he had somebody talking for but Ernie was a master uh mind I mean, he he could see if you're stumbling not so much me but other uh, talents that were in front of a camera if they were stumbling or fumbling boy he just take over that microphone and finish that promo so you didn't have to do it over. Because, you know, back then, you know, uh, JBL and, and Gerald, we, we used to do, you know, 50, 60 interviews in a day. <laughs> you got to make a mistake once in a while. And just to, to have those guys to be there to back you up. Yeah, he, he was uh, just one of a kind. I never, never uh, really did much with him. You know, every once in a while we 
go out for dinner after a, a garden match. Uh, but he was just a professional. And, and of course, Bobby Heenan, uh, because he was a worker also, because he could do the things in the ring, to me, it was probably the best uh, in-ring performer manager that I'd ever, ever met. He was my manager for a while. Mine was the Super Destroyer Mark II, and I turned uh, into uh, against my my partner and, and a couple other things. But Bobby was so much fun to be with. On top of it, I mean, he he uh, there wasn't much that that Bobby didn't do or would do, and, and uh, just great on the microphone, and, and and just was that way even off the microphone. He was just a uh, quick witted kind of guy and I miss him dearly and we've had we had a couple of, of fun incidents where, where we traveled and and a couple of little things happened to us and and even when he couldn't speak any longer I would just have to make a couple of motions and he would I felt sorry for him because he would start laughing so hard that it hurt him you know and I had to stop from doing that because it really hurt him at the end when he was uh, ill there, but uh, gosh, just so much fun. We one time a couple of ladies picked us up in Peoria, Illinois, to give us a ride. It was about a, a 50 minute ride to the hotel from the airport, a small airport that Vern would fly into. And so we're in the back of this uh van, and and uh, these two ladies worked up. The nicest or the brightest uh, looking uh, ladies, but they were they were they loved us. They they did everything for us. They buy us beers and and and, and all kinds of uh, good good things. But the the perfume was pretty wild, overdone, overdone. So Bobby and I are kind of like right down the road with our hands over our mouths. And finally, I looked over to Bobby. I said, "Do you think they believe us?" He goes, who? Who believe us? I said, our wives. What do you mean? I said, well, what if we veered off the road, crashed and burned? And our wives might think that we were screwing around on them with these two ladies. <laughs> <laughs> you think they would ever believe that we didn't really do anything? We were just in the ride. And uh, so every time I would see him, I would say that to him. and, and uh, and he would just start to laugh and, and cry almost. And uh, Super Destroyer Mark III, uh, Neil Gay from uh, Montreal, Canada, couldn't speak much English. So when we were, we were team, teamed up together, Bobby was our manager. And we would always ask uh, Neil, hey, Neil, how are you going to uh, drive to uh, Omaha? And he would look around. And then he looked at us and they go, I don't know. <laughs> and so every time, and no matter what we would ask him, the answer was always, I don't know. Because <laughs> he could speak English. And he always said, I don't know. So every time I'd see Bobby and I, he'd get close to me, I'd go, I don't know. <laughs> and he would just fall down laughing. Sarge, when you had the... the Right before WrestleMania one, you were will be one of the feature matches, and then because of the GI Joe contract, and you know, you explain what Vince went through with his own uh, action figure line, you left and went back to Minnesota. But that 
WrestleMania one was so successful. And then you had WrestleMania two, WrestleMania three, and the success kept building. Did you feel at that point that, you know, maybe I made a mistake. I know you later, you said you didn't regret it, but at that point, did you know in Minnesota, I mean, this, this guy's taking over the business. Did you ever look at that and think I might should have stayed or wanted to go back earlier? It was, uh, it crossed my mind a few times, but once I made the decision, I, you know, basically stuck with what I made my decision with and to kind of go through it quickly, you know, uh, Vince uh, brought out, brought me into the, the, his office and showed me the prototypes of the LJN big rubber action figure. And he said, look what I'm going to put out and what we're going to do. And I said, wow, that's pretty cool. And uh, I said, what, what's in it for us? And he goes, oh, don't worry about it. <laughs> They're going to be good, good for everybody. I said, what's good for everybody? And he kept, you know, evading it, evading the, the, the answer. So I, good friend of mine, uh, is an attorney in Connecticut. I was living in Connecticut. And I started telling him about it. He said, well, maybe uh, we should go have a meeting with this. And I said, well, I don't know. Vince isn't it's into attorneys, you know, and all that kind of thing. He said, well, you know, this is your business. Sergeant Slaughter is here. This is your business. You need to see what this is about. So we go back and finally I said, uh, do you mind if I bring my uh, attorney friend in to talk about this? Why do you have to bring an attorney? Well, I just want him to kind of hear what this is all about. Okay, yeah, bring So following Saturday, go in. And uh, he keeps asking events. So what is uh, the deal? What's the percentage that the uh, wrestlers are going to get? And it's, uh, don't worry about it. Everybody's going to be taken care of. Well, what's being taken care of? What the figure on that? <laughs> Can you round that off into like 1%? 0.02%. Just give us a number so we kind of know what. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. So everything got kind of just a mess. And then I had a problem down in Charlotte where my uh, family was living. And I had to make a move. And I said, I've, I've got to make a move. So I got to tell Vince I'm giving him my notice. So I go up and I tell him I'm, I'm giving you my notice. What? All because of a percentage thing? I said, no, no, this is a personal thing. Well, you're not leaving. I'm not taking your notice. Because we're building up to WrestleMania. Uh, and so we start negotiating all this, this stuff with the uh, action figures and, and the T-shirts and, and all the memorabilia. And, and uh things that they're, they're going to sell and could never get a number, never get a number. So I said, I'll tell you what, Vince, I'll stay as long as I can get a little more time off so I can go back and forth to Charlotte a little bit more. Okay, not a problem. I'll tell the, the booker. So what do you mean? You're the booker. <laughs> so 
uh, Sandy Scott came in, was kind of like the booker. He said, I'll tell Sandy. George Scott. Or, yeah, George Scott. George Scott, sorry. And so we got the uh, got the uh, uh, slip to our towns. I booked more than I was before I made the complaint. I'm, now I'm working three times on a Friday, two times on a Saturday, two times on a Sunday. I'm work- it was like, what is this, a joke? Is this Daddy Camper? I, I just asked for time off, and I'm getting more. So anyway, uh, we end up uh, not agreeing on too many things. So finally, my attorney says, it's time for us to go in and play hardball. Okay. So we go in. And he said, you tell me what you want Mr. Mad to pay you because I'm going to have to tell him that's what he can do. And he said, not everything you ask for is going to going to be taken, you know, but we'll throw it up and whatever sticks on the ceiling, you're going to get and whatever doesn't, he's going to, he's going to stick with what he's got. Okay. So we go into have this medium events. <laughs> And uh, I kind of got my head down the whole while because <laughs> my attorney goes, uh, okay, Vince, here's what Sarge wants. Uh, he wants uh, first-class transportation. Okay. And Vince is right this stuff. First-class. Okay. He wants uh, limo service. Limo service. Okay. Go, go down this whole list. He wants six weeks paid vacation. What? <laughs> Six weeks paid vacation. Yeah, that's what he wants. Okay, six weeks paid. I mean, it was, I'm like, oh my God, six weeks paid vacation. So, anyway, Vince says, give me a second, I'll go through all this. So, finally, Mark scribbles stuff off. He says, here's what I'm going to do I'm going to give you first class transportation, I'm going to give you a limo service, or I'll get your uh, rental cars. And blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to give you four weeks paid vacation. But so help me God, Sarge, if you tell anybody that you're getting paid vacation, you're you're done. Because if they find out you're getting it, they're all going to get it. I said, so we get up, shake hands. We're all set. Off we go. Come to find out the uh, the toy deal starts getting messed up. So we go back in for another meeting with Vince. Now he's got George Scott, uh, who's the promoter at Atlanta. Uh, Jim Barnett. Jim Barnett. Jim Barnett. Yeah. Barnett's there. A bunch of big wheels. Uh, the accountants, everybody's in this meeting. So Vince has got his chest out. Okay, this is it. I discussed it with all my people here, and uh, this is what you're going to get. My attorney looks at, wait a minute, that's not what we, we agreed on. That's not what we shook hands on. Well, this is what it is. Because I own Sergeant Slaughter. And he gets up and starts pointing at my my attorney pointing at his face. It's about this far from my attorney's nose. And finally, he says, and you, you attorneys, you're all a bunch of, you know, saying all these vulgar things at my attorney. 
and you don't belong here. You don't belong in our business. I don't know why you're even here. And as far as I'm concerned, this mat, this meeting is over. And he's pointing at my attorney. Finally, my attorney's a, a, a collegiate uh, champion wrestler in the lightweights. He's, he probably was about a 150. And he snatches Vince's finger, his index finger, and he starts pushing it back. And Vince is on his tiptoes. Oh, 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 oh. And he lets go. And he says, first off, Vince, get your fucking finger out of my face. Are we allowed to say that? I'm sorry. Yeah, you said yeah. it. You said it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Sorry. sorry. I just try to be as realistic as I can. And shoves it away. And he's second of all, you all know it's Sergeant Slaughter. Robert Remus owns Sergeant Slaughter. He says, I'll be damned. I own Sergeant Slaughter. I made Sergeant Slaughter. I'm Sergeant Slaughter. <laughs> and so my attorney opens up his briefcase, shows Vince a piece of paper. Vince looks at it. This meeting is dismissed. Emergency meeting. Emergency meeting. Now, I didn't know Vince went ahead and ordered all this stuff, Sergeant Slaughter stuff. I, I uh, took, in 1975, when I first started Sergeant Slaughter, my friend that took me to the, uh, to the barn to do the story on the pro wrestling training camp, he was in the military, and uh, my wife was born in uh, St. Uh, or Fort, Fort uh, Riley. So she wanted to go see the hospital where she was born. So he comes down, he's a major, and he can get right in and take us and show us. And while we're there, he says, you know, Bob, you should take in your name and protect it. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you should sign some papers. Uh, what do they call that? Uh, trademark. He said, you should trademark your name. I said, Sergeant Slaughter? He said, yeah, I would. I said, well, what does it cost? He says, I'm hardly anything. I'll do it for you. All you got to do is sign. Are you sure? Yeah. So I signed this paper. And just so happened <laughs> that I I own Sergeant Slaughter. So when Vince saw that he didn't own it, he went berserk. Wait a minute. <laughs> I ordered all this damn shit, you know, and and now he can't sell. He got it. Now he's got to look at, at me a different way. Well, he wasn't putting up with that. But as we all know, uh, he's not going to put up with that. So that was that was the beginning of the end. We ended up going uh, to court. He sued me for a million dollars. I was at a autograph session for three, four hours. I'm signing autographs. Finally, this guy has been there all day, kind of a trench coat on, and, and finally comes up. Hey, sir. Yeah. Would you mind signing a couple autographs for my uh, nephews? No, I don't know. What's their name? And your, your real name is Robert Remus, right? I said, yeah. Serves me. Serves me a million-dollar lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> so I go back and get my stuff going off. I call my attorney. I find a pay phone. Guess what? I just got served for a million-dollar lawsuit. 
by who? Vince McMahon, WWF. What? So, but that was a uh, Friday or a Saturday. That was a Saturday. So Sunday morning, we didn't live too far from each other. He said, hey, why don't you come on over for a little brunch? I said, okay. So he's about 11 o'clock. He looks at his watch. And he goes, it's 11 o'clock. I should be getting a call pretty quick. I said, oh, yeah, from who? Said, be surprised. So pretty soon the phone rings. Hello? Yeah. Okay. All right. Guess what? <laughs> what? Vince McMahon walked out to get his newspaper, you know, and he lives in a uh, secure, uh, uh, gated area. I said, yeah. He said, well, some kid on a bicycle said, hey, aren't you Vince McMahon? And he goes, I sure am. And he goes, here. He said, I served him a million dollar lawsuit. Uh-huh. Uh-oh. Here we go. Man, I was... JBL and Briscoe, I was in update. I was in hot water from that point on. I, there was no surviving. So I just started, you know. The G.I. Joe had, had started a little bit before all this had, had happened. So I had an opportunity. Uh, my attorney knew a, a friend that worked for, uh, had a friend that worked for Hasbro. And they had lunch. And uh, my attorney said, yeah, they, they were having lunch and they were talking about G.I. Joe and how they're going to go into a different direction and uh, that they're looking for a, a real life, you know, spokesperson to, to be their uh, ambassador and all this and that. And this guy said, well, what about Sergeant Slaughter? He goes, Sergeant Slaughter, that's all we've been talking about all morning. Do you know how to get a hold of him? He said, yeah. Said, a friend of mine is his attorney. He's a friend. I'll call him up tomorrow. So I, we get the call. And I head to uh, Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Got the camouflage limo, Big D, Don Cardoso's driving it for me. We just about get to the building. I said, stop, Don. So open up the trunk. I bought two uh, bumper uh, fender flags. I put them on the front fenders of the camouflage limo. Got my name plastered all over it. I said, just drive around about four or five blocks real slow, as slow as you can go. And then when I tell you, drive up into the Pawtucket. They had a, like a outdoor awning that you drive under he says, okay, my attorney's with me. So he said, what are you doing? I said, you'll see. So we drive around, drive around pretty soon. I said, okay, it's time. We drive up into that Pawtucket office uh, front door, and people are coming out of the woodworks. They're coming out of the restaurants, the barbershop, beauty shop, the, the hotels, wherever they're at, here they come. And it's like a mob scene. And I look inside, and all these people are, uh, that are working for Hasbro are going, holy cow, bless it. So I walk in, and we have this meeting, and I didn't say much of anything. And finally, they said, well, we'll, we'll keep it in consideration, Mr. Remus, uh, but you are kind of in the running for it. 
So I got up to leave and I went to walk out and I turned around and I went into character. I said, listen up, you maggots. If you want a real American hero, you're looking at him. I'm Sergeant Slaughter. If you want a real American hero, I'm the guy. You got it? Okay, you're dismissed. <laughs> and I walked out. And my attorney's like, you are out of your mind. <laughs> I said, hey, it's either make or break. So we stopped on our way back from, uh, from Pawtucket to get some dinner. We didn't have cell phones back then at first. He said, I got a better call my office, see if he had any calls. He comes back from the payphone. They've called three times. Who's called three? Hasbro. They want to sign you. You're the, you're the guy. They want you to be their, for their guy. Really? Okay. So the next course, next uh, time we go to Allentown, Pennsylvania, I can't wait to see Vince. Uh, tell what I've done, what I've done. So here I go. I go in. Hey, Vince, I got to talk to you. What is it? I said, you know, G.I. Joe? Oh, yeah. I said, well, they want me to be their spokesperson, their ambassador. And mm -hmm. made that great. Sergeant Slaughter, the wrestler, G.I. Joe, the cartoon, you know, the animation, blah, blah, blah. And he's going, yeah, I can't let you do it, sir. What do you mean? He said, I just signed with LJN yesterday, and that'd be a conflict of interest. But good job. Pat me on the back and walks away. That's that's right, be right before all the LJN stuff started with the percentages and what's this and what's that. And so it was it was all a, it was a battle. It was a battle from that, that point. And I'm trying to bring something to the table that's outside of wrestling. And he's fighting me the whole the whole way. I said, Fitz, there's gotta be a way. So finally he he said to me, hey, Sarge, I've had enough of it. You either can be a wrestler with the WWF or you can be a G.I. Joe. What's it going to be? And, of course, he expected me to say, oh, I'm going to be with WWE or WWF. So I, I said, okay. So I home that night, have a dinner with my wife, my two daughters, and I'm just kind of like not eating and thinking my wife across from me. But what is wrong with you? I've never seen you like this. I said, well, you know, I'm going to do this whole thing with Vince, but G.I. Joe and wrestling, WrestleMania is coming. She said, well, what's the problem? I said, well, he said I can't be in the WWF and G.I. Joe at the same time. So I have to make a decision. She said, well, that's pretty simple. I said, what do you mean, simple? She goes, you can always be a wrestler, Bob. <laughs> You can't always be a G.I. Joe. Yo, Joe. And I said, that's why you get the big bucks, honey. <laughs> so that was that's when I made the decision. I said, I called Vince next day. Uh, I made my decision. Okay, pal, what's it going to be? I'm going to Hasbro, going to G.I. Joe. What? <laughs> Wait a minute. We got WrestleMania. So all that. Escalated into the, the problems with the attorney and the lawsuits, and and finally for me to leave, I had to 
part ways and not be in that first WrestleMania. And tell you the truth, JBL, I was so tired of, of what I was going through. I, I lost interest in even watching WWF. I didn't even watch it. I didn't want to know anything about it. And WrestleMania 1 goes by 2, 3, 4, 5. Finally, I'm somewhere. Vern uh, Gagnon told me that if I wanted to come back to the AWA and promote G.I. Joe, I was more involved. So that's why I went back to wrestle in, in the AWA for a while. Uh, just to promote G.I. Joe for no other reason. But that's the only reason I went back. And it was just, you know, it just went, it went, it was good. I, I did very well. I did very, very good. Still doing very well. And finally, WrestleMania 6 is, is uh, going to be on. So I'm in a hotel. I think it was in Columbus, Ohio. And I got done with an appearance on a Sunday afternoon. And I saw the advertisement back in the, those days. They have it in the hotel room where you could order a pay-per-view or a, a movie or something on your TV. So I called the front desk. Can I get the uh, pay-per-view of the WWF uh, that's on tonight? Oh, yes, sir. Just tell me, give me a credit card number. So I go down and have dinner, and I don't. I miss the first few matches. And finally, I, I come up, and I turn it on, and it's a match right before Hogan and Lawyer. So I watched the Hogan and Lawyer match. But what really blew my socks off was the production. I went, holy cow. <laughs> have I, what have I been missing here? The last time I was with the WWF, they had like three cameras. All of a sudden, there's like 12, 14 cameras doing this, this pay-per-view. And I know you're, you're, you guys are probably on that show. But anyway... I, I go into the drawer of the hotel's uh, room and get out a pad. I think it was staying at a Marriott or something. That's a plug for Marriott. <laughs> and I get a pen and I put, Dear Vince, just watched WrestleMania 6. I have to give you a salute on your production. The most incredible uh, show I've ever watched. I was truthful. I was I was blown away with the production, and I signed it, Sarge. Uh, P.S. The match between Warrior and Hulk Hogan. P.U. Stunk horrible. So I I sent it off. But uh, a week later, I get a call on a Sunday. Afternoon, I'm watching a NASCAR race, kind of dozing off a little bit. Ring, ring. Hello, Sarge. Yeah, Vince. Hey, hey, Vince. How's it going? Hey, I wanted you to know I got your uh, letter. I said, Oh, you did? Yeah, and I appreciate it very much what you said about the production. I worked very, very hard with uh, everybody on, on all of this. And that means a lot to me that someone in your capacity saw the difference in a production from a wrestling match and the entertainment value of it. And he's gone through this whole thing. 
I said, oh, okay, yeah, that was, I really enjoyed it. But the match, you go, yeah, yeah, I know about the match. I know it wasn't the greatest match, but hell, it sold it out. And uh, so he said, by the way, he said, uh, I see your uh, contract with G.I. Joe is up. And I said, yeah, funny you should know that. He goes, that's my business, sir. That's what I, I, I need to know those things. And I said, oh, yeah. He said, are you ready to go back to work? I said, for you? He goes, yeah. Yeah, I'm ready. He said, well, I got an idea. Okay. We'll be at my house tomorrow morning. I'm going to have a little workout, and I got to go to the office. But come about 9 o'clock. Okay. So that night, I have dinner with my daughters and wife again. Guess where Dad's going tomorrow? Where are you going? To Vince McMahon's house. What? Where are you going there for? Well, he wants to talk to me. He wants me to come back to work. Oh, okay. I'm thinking, well, Vince is going to take Sergeant Slaughter, the real American hero, and make him the real, real, real American hero, you know, and got to bury the hatchet, so to say. So I'm off to uh, Vince's the next morning. Get there, get through the the, uh, gate and and pull up to his house. He comes out and greets me. It's like we never hadn't seen each other for two days. We were hugging each other and how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. You look great. I look great. You look great. Yeah. Come on in. So we go in. Would you like anything? Coffee? Oh, give me a coffee. So he said, come on here. So we go into his little library. Little area he has off his living room there, entry. And uh, walk in and here's a uh, diagram of the L.A. Coliseum, a prototype. Got big screen TVs on all both ends and on both sides. And he said, that's where WrestleMania 7 is going to take place. I said, really? Outdoor? You know, yeah, 104,000. I want to break the Detroit record. I said, great. Unbelievable. I think you'll do it. He says, I know I'm going to do it. And I'm going to have you do it with me. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, I want you and Hulk Hogan to sell that out. And I said, me and Hulk Hogan? He goes, yeah. I said, how are you going to make Hulk Hogan the villain? He went right in my face. He goes, Hulk Hogan? You, G.I. Joe, are going to be the villain. And I went, what? Man, I, I, you really caught me off guard on that one. Hell of a surprise. And uh, we still laugh about that today, all these element of surprises we played on each other. But anyway, uh, like the uh, you know, trademark. <laughs> and uh, so he says, yeah, here's my idea. You are coming back from, we don't have to say G.I. Joe, but you just returned and you're angry. You've got a chip on your shoulder. What is wrong with America? They're weak. They let countries, little country like Iraq, take over Kuwait, take all the Iranian, and control the world. And, and you're angry at your military and your country. And, and you're really, he really laid it all in. 
out for me. And I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and he goes, what do you think? And I said, I wanted to say, I think you're out of your mind. I said, uh, I like it. I like it. I, I can see that. That can really be a good one. And he said, well, before you agree, go home and talk to your family about it because it could get a little, get a little dangerous. And I said, well, not a problem. I've been through that situation before. So off I go, have dinner that night. So how did the meeting go uh, with this? I said, oh, my great. My great. We're going to go to the L.A. Coliseum, 104,000, Hulk Hogan and I. And, and it's going to be him and I in the main event. This is a year from now. And my wife says, oh, that's great. How is Vince going to make Hulk Hogan the villain? <laughs> and I said, oh, uh, he's not going to be the villain. I am. She said, what? You're G.I. Joe. You can't, can't do that. You're going to get... And I started telling her about the Iraqi thing. Well, you know, I'm going to be upset with my country, and I'm going to do this. She said, you can't, Bob, you can't do that. You're going to get killed. I said, well, you know, she said, I, you've always done whatever you think is best for your character. You just don't do what you got to do. And... Uh, I said, okay, you're the general. I'm I'm off. So that's but that's what started the whole uh my comeback. I was doing all of these vignettes outside uh, military bases and growling and saying I didn't like my country and I, I'm, I'm just disappointed in what my military has become and weak and all this and that. You know, Sarge, one thing that's so interesting about this, excuse me for interrupting, is the nuance. You know, it's not just, and this is what I loved about being a villain at WWE. There was always nuance. It wasn't just, I support Saddam Hussein, I support Iraq. You were mad at your country. So if you right. think about it on that level, you know, it kind of makes sense. You know, you're mad at yeah. my country, my country's, you know, wait, my country's this, my country's that. You're right. upset because you were a patriot in your own mind. But it's the nuance of being a villain that right. that gets that right. level. It's just I, I love stuff like that because it's, right. that's that's that's, that's, been, that's Vince genius. That's that's i just gonna, you just took the words out of my mouth. That that's where he was the genius because, as you just said, I was upset with my country, not just Saddam. I was I was looking at Saddam as a he's a hell of a general. He's a He's not a president. He's a general. He's a military fighter. And he's defeating all of you guys, you know. And so Vince, when I told him, yeah, we're going to go for it, he just said, well, I'm going to let you run your own program, he said. And we're going to do these vignettes. And if you do something too far over the line, I'll pull you back. But just you go be Sergeant Slaughter the villain that we all know and love. And I said, okay, no hold bar, no hold bar. So we're about halfway through these vignettes and I get a call Sunday night, about three o'clock or about two o'clock in the morning. Hello, Sarge. Yeah, Vince. Oh, hey Vince, got a problem. What's the problem? Uh, Macho, uh, Ultimate Warrior broke uh, Macho Man's hand match tonight so 
he's on the on the lamb. You've got to take his spot in all these matches with the warrior. I said, oh, okay. I never even met the warrior before. I didn't know what he looked, hardly what he looked like other than when I saw him on TV. So off I am. And he said, I hope you're in shape and ready. I said, I'll have to get in shape. So off we go. I take all of uh, Randy's bookings and and it's me and the ultimate warrior. They're already into cage matches, and death matches, and no old barred matches. I, I've been on the hiatus for six years, you know, doing nothing. So anyway, I we lost uh, your Sarge. Sarge, we lost your pitcher. Oh, my battery's low. Can I plug you in? Let me see here. Plug it in. There you go. Okay. Perfect. Okay. We'll probably have to. Should I get a, a cord and plug it back in? But anyway, I'll go a little bit faster. So, first <laughs> match we we do warrior. I, I call a uh, three clotheslines. The first one I couldn't even get up. <laughs> he he knocked me so stiff with that first clothesline. I barely got up for the next two. So after the match. I slid back over to my locker room and I slid over to his locker room and he's sitting there just minding his own business. I said, can I have a word with you? And we go into the shower and he goes, yeah, what, what is it? Good match, good match. I said, yeah, it was okay. But uh, if you ever hit me with a clothesline that again, you hit me all you want in the chest, but don't hit me in the face and in, in the head. You're going to kill me. He said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's a, Okay, I'll take that apology, but if it ever happens again, I'm going to retaliate. And I don't think you're going to like it. Oh, yeah, no, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So, anyway, we do all of these matches all over the, the place. And we end up, you know, doing the, uh, the, the match in uh, Miami where I take the title and Macho Man is rehealed. He comes down and helps me with the scepter and, and sensational Sherry. And she was my manager for a while till he healed. And then I got General Adnan uh, uh, to come in. Uh, we were looking for somebody to, to be an, uh, a manager for me, like a general. So somebody knew Billy White Wolf up in Minneapolis and called him, told him to come up to New York. And uh, he, when he put his uh, outfit on, his Iraqi, you know, he was from Iraq. He went to college with Saddam Hussein. He was an Olympian over there. Yeah, yeah, Olympic wrestler. And got, got and uh, Saddam Hussein was his promotional partner in, in Iraq, too. Right, right. So he, he knew the language. He knew he hated him. He hated Saddam. But here he is, you know, putting him over in all these problems and stuff that we did. So I said, just do your stuff in whatever that language is that you you speak, and I'll tell the people what you just said. And he said, okay. So that's how we always started our interviews. He would start out, and I would take it. And we got so much, so much. The first night in Hershey, Pennsylvania, when he was going to go out with me, Vince said, uh, Billy, go put your outfit on and bring it, bring it in the office. He leaves, he comes in, and I'm telling you, <laughs> JBL and uh, Gerald, he looked just like Saddam Hussein when he walked in the, through the door. 
he had this outfit on that like the general. The only thing he had a plastic gun on his hip. And I said, Oh, whoa, whoa, take get rid of that damn plastic gun. I don't care if it's plastic or what it is. Don't wear that out there. Uh-huh. And don't give anybody any ideas. So we got rid of the plastic gun, but that was just instant heat. I mean, we did some crazy, crazy stuff. When it was Saddam's birthday, I stopped at a store, got a birthday cake. And I go out and tell the people, it's you you may not know this, but today's Saddam Hussein's birthday. I like you all to stand up and say happy birthday to Saddam Hussein, you know. But I would time it to where whoever my opponent was, their music would hit. So they would be happy to see me get the cake in the face and you know, all that, what we did with it. Then I do little promos like, uh, you may not know this, but today is uh, Veterans Day in Iraq, and I'd like you all to stand up and give 10 seconds of silence to all the brave Iraqi soldiers who died in the overtake of Kuwait. And I mean, people want to kill me. And uh, I'd always time it so that the music would hit from my opponent. And that would satisfy the people. I'd just go flying and flying and flying until it was time to get some heat, you know. But so, Sarge, Sarge, is it is it true? Is it true, Sarge, that you actually had to take your daughter down of their school because there was so much heat on them? Yeah, yeah. We we I got right after I, I won the title uh in Miami, the next night we were in Philadelphia. And when I got there, uh Jay Strombo was the uh was the agent. And he goes, Hey Jack. Good job, Leslie. Good job. Have you have you speaking have you speaking or spoken to uh uh the uh what do you call him the emperor Caesar Caesar yeah. he said emperor did you ever did you speak to the emperor today I said Vince he goes yeah I said no I haven't talked oh have you spoken to your wife today I said no is there something wrong well you know uh I would give her both a call. So I find a payphone, call my wife first. No, no mess, no, no answer message. Hey, I, I'm, you know, I just supposed to call you. Okay, I'll get back to you later. I call Vince. He's just leaving for the office. Hey, great, great match last night, uh, Sarge. I just got back and I'm heading to the office. Uh, but uh, have you spoken to your wife? I said, no, what's going on with my wife? Is there something wrong with my wife? He said, well, no. Uh, somebody called the wrestling office this morning and said they're going to kill you. They're going to kill your family. They're going to kill me and kill my family. Blow up our cars, blow up our homes, and blow up the office and the, and the studio. And he said, as a precaution, I called your wife to see if she could leave your house for a few days just so uh, I could get some security there. And I said, oh, really? He goes, yeah, but everything's fine. So I finally get a hold of my wife. Uh, she's over at a girlfriend's house. And I said, geez, I'm sorry. What's she said, I told you. What a good idea to do all this stuff. And I said, well, it's just a precaution. So uh, I come home about three days later, and I lived in Connecticut where was, I had four-acre piece of property on top of this plateau where you could hardly even get a car up the driveway. And when I got to the top of the driveway, there was a Winnebago in my driveway. I know how it got up there, but it was up there. And I get out of my car, and here comes four gentlemen. They got uh, sports coats on, and they both 
they all came over, introduced themselves, said who they were with, opened up their lapels or their jackets and showed me they were packing weapons. And they said, we've been told to watch and uh, walk the perimeter of your property 24-7 until told not to. And we are going to take your children to school and your wife to the store and to the beauty shop or whatever she has to go to. And uh, we're going to follow you around. I said, well, you can follow me all you want, but you ain't taking my my wife anywhere and my children. You're not going to their school. Well, that's what we were told. So I said, okay. So I, I walk into the house, my wife's in there. She's got the rolling pin ready to whack me, you know. And uh, she said, I'm not going to any place with an armed guard. My kids aren't going to have armed guards. I know, I know. But uh, anyway, so a couple of times I had to go up to the school because, uh, you know, kids can be kids. And I had to tell all the, the kids at the school that I'm Robert Remus, their, their dad, and I'm an actor. I'm, I'm an entertainer. And I, what I do on television is exactly, you know, I'm, I'm a portraying somebody, you know. But it went in when you're out the other. So we had to be very careful. One night I got to Madison Square Garden. Vince says, some people want to talk to you in the back room over there. I go in there. It's four FBI guys. Uh, Mr. Remus, uh, we were wondering if you would mind wearing this bulletproof vest when you wrestle. It's a new mesh that we wear under our clothing. And we would like you to, if you wouldn't mind, because whether you know it or not, every night you get death threats and bomb threats in the buildings. Half the time, we're not even sure if we can let the show go on because we're getting all these threats. I said, oh yeah, I'll try it for a while. So that I did that you know, for a while. Finally, you know, after all the said and done, when the war started, we, we backed off. You know, we, we said- uh, we Sarge, Sarge, that. Sarge, I, I've never heard this, this, this part of the story uh, and exactly how you were informed. I remember how I was informed, but when, how was you informed that they were pulling out of the Coliseum and going to the sports arena there in, in L.A.? And was that, I'm sure it had to be a huge disappointment, both you and Terry and Vent. But uh, oh, yeah. how that, were you that informed? Was, that, was, that, was, that was the whole, the worst day of my life was when Vince called me and said, Sarge, I got some bad news. And I, you know, I didn't know what he was meaning. I said, what? He said, the L.A. Coliseum wants me to secure the Coliseum. It's going to cost between four and five million dollars, and I'm just not going to do it. I can't, can't do it. So we're going to move the the show indoors to the arena, L.A. Arena. And I said, "What? No, no." Because you know, as you know, JBL and Gerald, when you, you look up the records of matches and you see uh, L.A. Coliseum, Hogan, and Slaughter sold out 104,000. That's a badge. I mean, that's a, that, yeah. you don't have to be paid. Yeah. I mean, buddy, buddy, Rogers, Luthes, Comiskey Park, it's a, it's, a, it's a venue you remember, you know, for eternity. Yeah. I mean, I, right. you guys would have been up there in those, those, those legends. Uh, you, even yeah. though you are legends, you're still in up in there yeah. in those, those guys. Oh, but, yeah. You know, the that disappointment, was, was, the disappointment you had to have at that time had to be oh, tremendous. Yeah. And, and it was just heartbreaking. 
And I said, are you sure? Are you sure? And I kept asking, yes, sir, I'm not going to pay. He said, I can't pay that kind of money. He said, it's outrageous. They're, they're take, trying to take advantage of me. And I said, oh, my God, please. And so, you know, there was all these rumors that, you know, uh, it wasn't drawing. And when I got my damn paycheck, it drew. <laughs> it <was a> <laughs> Biggest yeah, I, I, I never seen that much money. I mean, uh, well, but, it wasn't the advance because the advance was pretty solid for that show. You know, yeah, what yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, I'm going by what Vince told me. Vince told me that they wanted to secure the the. Uh, well, that, that that's that's the story that I'd heard. That's the reason right. I kind of asked you because I wanted to know if what what you were told, but we were all told, you right. know the that the uh, security that the government wanted Vince to get so much security. They wanted tanks out there. They wanted helicopters yeah. circling the damn yeah. thing. They wanted all this military presence there. And of course, Vince wasn't going to pay that four or five, three or four or five million dollars, whatever it was to secure all that place. Right. Plus I think they were afraid that some crazy person may have shot a bomb into the damn place. You know, who knows? Uh, Sarge was the, the security at your house. Was that from Vince? Uh, that was from Vince, yeah. Vince uh, made sure that uh, that was there. And from that point on, whenever I left my house, I, when I traveled on an airplane, I never went to the airport. I would drive through the gates of an airport, like, say, LaGuardia, and drive right up underneath the plane. And I would go up the steps of the plane and be on the plane before anybody boarded. And people would come on and they'd see me and they'd go, how the hell did he get on here, you know? And same way when we landed, as soon as they landed, everybody get off the plane. I'd go down the steps and uh, get into a car, uh, usually a, two police cars and, a, and usually a, a limo. But uh, a lot of times just a, a passenger car would take me either to the hotel or to, uh, the, to the arena. And uh, nobody would ever see me coming or going. You know, if, if I was at the hotel, most of the time, they would put our matches on right before intermission. So they would call me and say, car's coming to get you. So I'd, I'd already be dressed in my hotel, go go uh, to the arena. Everybody's already in it. So I would go out to have my match. And while they were announcing the next card during the intermission, I would go back out, either back to the hotel or off to the uh, the airport for my next show, wherever we were going. And uh, that's that's how it was for quite a while. The saddest, part, saddest part was during during all this, uh, I picked up Saddam or Saddam. I picked up uh, Adnan one one morning, and he was weeping and weeping, and he couldn't talk. And he had his beads. He was his worry uh, beads, or whatever they call them. And he was rubbing and rubbing and crying and crying and crying. So finally, we were going in Texas somewhere. Uh, I think it was Laredo, or and finally, I got him to tell me what was what was wrong. He said that his whole family was wiped out by bombs from uh, the night before. His brother was in the military with uh, Saddam, and he called them and told them our whole family's been killed. Wow! And uh, so he had to do all those promos all day. We were doing TV that day. And all day long, he had to do those promos while knowing that his family 
that got wiped out by somebody he hated. And he's promoting, you know, at the same time. That was, I don't know how he did it, but he did it. And, uh, you know, I, I want to say, just in case he might be listening, I, I really feel sorry for him because he just lost his son. And I'm not sure how it happened, but uh, he was supposed to be with us, Gerald, uh, as you know. Water. Where you're going to, you're going to uh, honor uh, uh, our, your fallen comrade, uh, uh, Don Carnoodle, who uh, yes. finally, finally, after all these years and through uh, a lot of assists from you and a yeah. lot of prodding uh, from you to me, to, we finally got him inducted into the nominated and voted unanimously into the Dan Gable, George Tregas, Luthez Hall of Fame out in Waterloo, yes. Iowa. Next weekend, yeah. matter of fact, yeah. and you're going to hear 15th. you and you and Bob 15th, uh, and Wally and Brett are going to be there next, to honor honor Don. So. Next next weekend, yeah. Next Hope weekend. anybody that's uh, listening or watching, please, uh, if you get anywhere near Waterloo, come by. Uh, be a great time to, to come by. Uh, it's the July fifteenth through the seventeenth. All right, yeah, it'd be great to see everybody and, and pay. Uh, uh, you know honors to all those that are being inducted yeah yeah sarge to, to go out on a high note here you you know all this heat that you had i mean you know through beautiful bob remus and bobby remus and uh you know sergeant slaughter gi joe and all this and these iconic matches with pat patterson and and everybody else you had with and then then the uh the big deal with 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 hogan you ended up doing one of the most iconic uh, bits ever in the, in the history of DX and and, and uh, sports entertainment. You know which one I'm talking about. This is awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is would, awesome. Would, you, would you tell us your feelings? <laughs> your Sorry, I got to tell you that was one. I don't know how. You know, I've been out there and been surprised by guys. You know how it was the Attitude Era. Both you guys do. We, we lived through before, during, and after. Guys would just yeah. surprise you with stuff to yeah, see if they yeah. can get you to laugh. And yeah. that was some of the most creative stuff. Sergeant, yeah. I have no idea how you kept a straight face during that I, I don't either, Everybody JB. remembers. I don't either, JBL. I, you know, we were, we were, you know, running hard and heavy and, and every night and always doing little fun things to each other, uh, make, trying to make each other laugh, as, as you know, JBL and, and Gerald, as you had mentioned. That was kind of the, fun part of the business was trying to get somebody to laugh, especially live television, yeah. you know, and, yes. and I'd get Gene Okerlund every once in a while to, to break up because I'd say something crazy and, and I do it on purpose, you know, just to try to get him to laugh. And, but he always, you know, made it, made it even more funny. But that night I came out and I was going to give them the, uh, the riot act. And as I came down, <laughs> I still laugh about it. And I came down to the ring and I get into the ring and I see a paper bag, two paper bags sitting in the in the ring. And as everybody knows, when I when I scream and holler as I did to Vince on that first pro ball, I was spitting all over his face. The first round was coming. That's why Gallagher had a, had a watermelon concert. <laughs> yeah. I apologize to everybody that I ever do a promo <laughs> before and I also apologize after I am sorry but my my jaw doesn't allow me to keep the spit in my mouth I'm sorry <laughs> but I want to apologize to you 
So anyway, I, I go out there and I see the two bags. And uh, I start looking up. I'm thinking uh, there's probably going to be some of that green stuff falling on my head here. You know, they're up to something. So I start giving them the riot act. And all of a sudden, Shawn Michael goes, hold it, hold it, sir. Hang on a second. Before you get too much further, you know, how he could animate himself and, and his his old buddy sitting next to him chuckling, you know, trying to make me to laugh. And I, I still didn't know what was going on. So finally, hey, sir, just hang on a second. Just hang on a second before you get too much. And they reach down and they put these, they take these clear uh, masks out, welding masks with no, it was clear face, and they put them on their face. <laughs> and I looked and I went, Oh, that's that's kind of cute. Cute, you know, trying to tell me that I'm spitting too much. So I said, All right, well, that's real cute. And I started to bring your brain up again, and they said, Oh, whoa, whoa, sorry. hang on a second. And they reach up and they push the button. And the damn windshield wipers started going <laughs> on those on those shields. I'm telling you, JBL, I don't know how I did not burst out laughing, but I kept the straight face as as best I could. I think I've still got a hole of my my lip from from biting my lip on that one. But that was the hilarious, most hilarious uh, thing I've ever been involved in in professional wrestling. I mean, I've had I've seen guys drop their pants and, and fall off the top of a turnbuckle onto the floor and different incidences, but that was a classic. I mean, that I wish they would show that more often on some bloopers or whatever. It wasn't really a blooper, but it was. It you was know, hilarious. John might John might be able to arrange showing that at. Uh, uh, he got some contact with WWE. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it, it's yeah. become one of the most iconic moments of the Attitude oh, Era. Yeah. I mean, they show, it's just, and it's every time you see it, it's it's, it's just funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But to, to to be there and to and be part of it and not and know that you didn't laugh. I mean, that that was that took everything I had. I mean, I've been in situations, you know, Montreal screw job and and all that stuff. Girl, we went, we were right in that locker room when uh, all the stuff happened and and uh you know it was just one of that i mean that was that was uh that was that was that was business back then you know that was but this was uh entertainment that 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 uh, witcher wiper thing was entertainment and we we entertained each other and i I, i'm getting low on the battery i yeah i saw what Listen, oh, we, can't, we can't thank you enough, man. This is oh. such a wonderful journey you just took us on. And well, getting, getting to see you is always a pleasure as well. But thank you well, so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. You know, Vince McMahon sat down with me at uh, at uh, a cannery one, one day in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. We were inside the dome doing a show. And uh, he says, Sarge, you know, someday you should write a book. And I said, Vince, it had to be an encyclopedia. <laughs> and six weeks later, they had the WWE encyclopedia. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, Sarge, I, I can't thank you enough, and I look so forward to me uh, to seeing you next next week in Waterloo, Iowa, at the Blue Thez, George Tragus, Dan Gable Museum. Yes. And, uh, and I, I'm sure, uh, even though our, our brother uh, uh, Don Carnoodle will not be there physically, physically with us, uh, uh, you know, he'll be there in spirit. And uh, oh, he, yeah. I, I look forward to what you have to say about just a wonderful young man that Don was. So oh, thanks yeah. so much uh, for being yeah. here with us. Hope you enjoyed it as much as John and I have. We had a blast oh. doing these things. I hope I did talk. Uh, your ears off too much and never and i look forward to uh coming to uh waterloo and i got some great stories about don and like i said if anybody's uh near waterloo this weekend uh the 15th through the 17th uh please come i'll be in monroe pennsylvania the 9th of july niles ohio on the 10th Savannah, Georgia, the 23rd, 25th of July, Raleigh, North Carolina, July 29th through the 1st. Is that enough plugs or what? <laughs> hey, you plug anything that you want to after today. All right. Thank <laughs> you. Love you both. Can't wait to give you both hugs and uh, a Cobra clutch. <laughs>